All right. Hello, fellow songwriters, and welcome to the ninth episode of the How Songs Are Made podcast, where we talk to notable artists about their songwriting process. I'm your host, Trey Xavier, and today we're going to be talking to the band Bad Wolves about their recent album, Dear Monsters. Today's episode of the podcast is sponsored once again by me and my songwriting course, Complete Rock and Metal Songwriting. If you're like most guitarists, you've got a million riffs and no complete finished songs. That's why I created this course to show you how to take any musical idea and turn it into a fully fleshed out song with all the trimmings. So to enroll in the course, hit the link in the description or head over to howsongsaremade.com. Today, we're going to be talking to the band about how they wrote their massive hit album, Dear Monsters, which was produced by Josh Gilbert. And it was the first album to feature their new vocalist, DL, who I've sort of admired in a songwriting and production way for a very long time. And it's really interesting to hear how he worked on it. Now the band's got him, a producer, songwriter, as well as John Bachlin and Doc here with us today. And then working with Josh Gilbert. I have so many questions. I have so many questions about that because that sounds like too many cooks, but what came out was so cohesive and awesome. So please, everyone, welcome my guests, uh, John Bachlin and Doc Coyle from Bad Wolves. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. You can't hear it, but they're applauding you. Thank you to the people. By the way, just to make some clarifications, Josh Gilbert is in a production team with Joseph McQueen, who is very, very extremely involved, and he, he mixed the record... And there's a few other people we work with, Max Karen, Brandon Sammons, even DL did some production work on this record. So it's uh it takes a village in the in the in the Bad Wolves world. So a village of wolves. It was also produced by myself too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The big question that I ask on this podcast, and all the other questions are basically follow-up questions. It's what is the your usual songwriting process and how was it different on this album? So I guess we'll start there. And it'll probably become more clear as we go how all of the uh, the whole village contributes to the album. So first of all, thank you for taking the time for uh, to be on with us. I'm very excited to hear all about this. I've known Doc for a few years now. I think the last, maybe the last time I saw you, maybe once since then, but was at Alex's house when we were shooting some Vegas Nerve content. Well, that's the last time we did something. I've definitely seen you a bunch of yeah. times since then. But uh, yeah, we were doing some stuff for for that record, some like like playthroughs and stuff. But I want to tee off this question because yeah. you had asked me to be on the show, and then when you said it was about songwriting, I I felt remiss to make myself the the focal point of that discussion because I'm not the main songwriter in Bad Bulls. John is, and I I'm a contributing songwriter, and I I can tell you, oh, this song I worked on or this part I worked on. But I felt like without John here. Um, it, you really wouldn't be able to tell the full story of what the songwriting process is like with this band. So I wanted to make sure he got in here. So John, you can tell Trey and the Gear Gods fans um, what that the kind of like the beginning of that process is actually usually like. Yeah, like the beginning of the band was uh, me and Max Karen and Brandon Sammons. He was the original singer, and then uh, but we're here to talk about Dear Monsters, right? You know, but in general. It was a different band, and then right, right before we got, was it signed? I don't really remember. Uh, Max quit. He's like, I don't want to be in the band. And that was hard, especially when you're just like trying to 
figure it all out. But we still were a writing team. So uh, after the first record, the second record was a lot. Me and Max, Doc came in kind of late on the first record, but like great, great input there. So uh, like no masters, Doc tells that with a, you know, if you're a fan, you may have so many songs. But in general, on the third record, or like Doc wrote, uh, you know, a Better Office Way, you know, what a great composed song in my opinion. Like one of the best songs the band has. So Doc is just like continually just stepping in. And so same with Chris King. He's like been in the band since 2013, but kind of just like on the sidelines. And like anything Chris writes is amazing. So it's like, the fourth, we went through a lot of turmoil, obviously, but the fourth record is really going to shine, in my opinion, with so much more Doc, so much more Chris. Whatever Doc lends his hand to this band, it's, it's just amazing. But yes, I will take that hat for like being the main songwriter. I honestly want to be relieved of... <laughs> <laughs> too much pressure? No, just too much laziness. Too much laziness. Well, I feel like John did a little dodge there because I think, you know, his kind of comfort place is in the studio making music creating things and it's not just with this band he just has it's it's you know it's interesting that he you know made sure to let you know that he is part of the producer you know has wears the producer hat and it's almost like i think with john the producing hat and the songwriting hat are kind of go hand in hand it's really about and john can kind of play obviously he's a great drummer He's a really good guitar player, but he knows one of his best skills, and this is me just watching him work, is he's able to kind of be the maestro in the room and get organize other, even other talented people to get the result that he wants. And to me, that's like, that is a producer, but it, but it is with the goal of songwriting. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I think we're almost, with the way uh, modern records are made, maybe those roles are almost like the lines are very blurred, right? Like between songwriting and production and maybe they they go hand in hand. Maybe give a small example from this album of how a song took shape, like soup to nuts. Like where does it, where do you generally start and how do you build it into a complete structure? Let's start with like the opening track was uh, something uh, I wrote on a piano. Uh, like, you know, take it from there. The main part, though, that's Chris Kane's riff. Oh, yeah. I was getting to that. Yeah, it's like the heavy riff was like, you know, something I wrote on piano. And But when Chris Kane, God bless him, anytime he just sent, he just doesn't write that much. What he does, it was like, holy fuck. Like, so he just sent me this like voice note, you know, just that riff, that, that, that's the chorus. And uh, I was like, oh my God, you know what we can do with this? You know, just like, oh, it was, it was like, it was a playground for me. It's just like, oh my God, it's so much fun. And uh, yeah, that's how that came out. And then like, the verses were different at one point, and then uh, Kyle was sending over riffs, and they're like, yo, Kyle's riffs will be the better verse riff. What else? Fucking, uh, probably the most collaborative the band's been, I think, right, Doug? Yeah, but it's funny. I didn't have anything to do with that song. <laughs> <laughs> but keep in mind, I, I think it's this thing where I have no real attachment to the idea that like I need to contribute to something. Do you know what I'm saying? Unless it's a situation, like I kind of put my foot down on this record, where I was like, if there's a solo in the song, I need to play the solo or Chris needs to play the solo. Because we, we've had situations where, um, you know, especially uh, on the older records where maybe other people would, would, would work on a song or it was outside songwriters and maybe they'd play on it. And, it, and we weren't quite as brought into the process, you know, like, and we didn't really have a lot of choice over that. Like, I would love to rewind on that real quick, like, because it's interesting how the band started, which was me, Max, and this guy, Brandon. So it's like, 
crazy to say outside songwriters, like on the on the first record. I mean, like something like the stuff Tommy did with uh, Drew Falk, right? So where you have his, you know, like his, I forget uh, his partner that Drew Falk works with played like you know the acoustic stuff on Sober, right? And it's just like they did it, and they so it's like their songwriting team, and they just kind of played it, and it's like this thing of so I'm not pointing that to you. I'm just saying more like those types of songs. Yeah, I was just trying to explain, like, uh, it's so weird how the band has morphed, you know? Like, yeah, it's hard to explain, but, like, once we're solidified more as, like, a unit, like, like, who wrote the first record? Me and Max. Pretty much me and Max wrote the second record, too. I think, you know, anything screaming, like, Tommy was, like, pretty much wrote 100%, I think, yeah, 100% all him. But most of his vocal lines were written by other people, which is, like, crazy for me or doc like right like you know that's not how metal goes so you're like uh but getting used to it it's like but the singer who wrote most of the stuff was the original singer so we just kind of continue with that and uh, we just have an open forum with bad wolves but on our fourth record that we're going to start doing to me is like uh we're going to really hone in on just just the, the five of us like he said to kind of pivot off what john said it's been a real evolution in that you had people involved with the band that weren't going to be part of like the touring process and part of the actual like face of the band. And so you had this, and I came in with a record that was maybe 75, 80% complete when I joined. And then there was this whole new group of songs and I was involved a little bit. And then on the second record, him and Max started went and they were just writing, writing, writing. And I was actually, you know, because you know, Trey, you know, if you, you listen to Vegas nerve, you listen to God forbid, you have an idea of like what I write. Right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know if that was necessarily compatible with what the quote unquote bad wolf sound was. So I had to like do a lot of stuff on my own and experiment a lot to go, okay, can I write, I need to develop stuff that feels like it makes sense with this band and, and I could write in the voice of bad wolf. So that took some time where I had to almost gain their trust, but also trust myself that I could bring stuff to the table that, that made sense. Now I have complete confidence in that, but I almost didn't wanna just based on ego come in and mess up their process you know what i'm saying because it seemed to be working yeah don't you don't want to just insert yourself in just uh out of yeah like you're saying ego i love hearing about this because i think that there is a a mindset in metal about working with other people and allowing not necessarily outside um help but like kind of a more communal writing process either straight up outside songwriters like professionals or people who aren't in in the band in the touring band like you're saying or whatever or any kind of yeah it, there seems to be this just a bad attitude around it and the way that you're describing it i think that's a much healthier way of looking at it you know like whatever's the best for what's coming out you know whatever's the best song though the best way to go about it is what we should do and it shows you guys are the proof in the pudding that it works you're absolutely fucking crushing it and i love hearing about it yeah but also like i don't want to get it twisted you know it's like we we are going like most of the shit that comes out what we do is from within like the whole first record and then when like zombie took off and like i remember uh tommy didn't tell me that he was like writing a a song with someone else, you know, okay. but uh, he had all intentions of knowing that like, maybe we could be a radio band. And when he brought in, remember when, you know, it was very difficult for me to be like, wait, what? Like from devil driver to this, like, and doc, 
or we're just used to doing our own stuff. So it was very just like, but I, I remember he sent it to me. Oh my God, I wanted to hate it. But I was like, you know, it's amazing. You know, like, <laughs> and it's, 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 his story too. And I was so proud of him for kind of like telling that story and it's gnarly, you know? And, uh, it was just, uh, I was like, that's what was, that was my first step. What you start to realize when you kind of have that perspective of hearing another songwriter kind of put a different feel on it that maybe has that accessibility or commercial viability, all of a sudden it makes you look at your material a little more going, well, maybe we can make our hook stronger or maybe we can hone in on some lyrical content that will connect because the truth is, I think, <laughs> it's like, I remember we were, uh, we were talking about some other metal bands where they're like, that we're friends with, they're like, oh, we think this has radio potential. And now from the perspective of Bad Wolves, we're like, man, that ain't radio. Like, like it's a, it's such a different language of trying to kind of communicate to regular people that are not musicians, that are not. And it's just, it is a different kind of frequency that, you know, when you, you're just trying to write on a different, di different level. And you can call it simplicity. You can call it kind of universalness or whatever, universality. But uh, I feel like I'm destroying that. <laughs> but uh, I totally agree with you. I'm, I remember like being, we're all metalheads, like pretty much our, our bands were. And I just remember like sharing certain songs with like our lawyer, like early on, Eric German. Shout out to him. The band would not exist without him, that's for sure. Like thinking, oh, this song's a single or blah, blah. And like he was like kidding me, like, are you fucking high? Like, you think this is going to be on radio? Like, you know, it's like, dude, it's got fucking good vocals in the chorus. Like, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. Like now I completely think differently on, on what that is. And uh, Bad Wolves is definitely playing and catering to that. And it's a lot of fun, in my opinion. Yeah. Back to sort of the the process of how you actually go go about it at this point. I, I think it's uh, really, the you mentioned the, the opener, which in my opinion is the, well, it's my favorite one on the album. And I think the way that it sounds, it has this cool sort of amalgam of different things that work together really well. But then uh, the way that you, you've been describing the process so far is like the everybody contribute. Well, apparently except for Doc, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, a bunch of different people in the band contributing ideas. Kyle had the verse riff. So uh, once you've got these kind of ideas going, how do you how do you actually pull it all together? What is your actual process? What like what was the next thing that happened? You had the piano riff and this heavy riff. And let me set John up, John. If you're having a session with Max, and keep in mind, Max is a like, God-tier God guitar player and also uh, engineer you know, as, 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 as well. So how do, would a, a general session between you and Max, how does that get going as far as putting ideas down and working on a tune? You know, the pandemic was there, so we're doing, a, I think it's called Audio Listeners or whatever, so we decided, like, instead of audio. Audio Movers. Oh, yeah. Audio Movers is great. Yeah, so on this one, like, Max is very... He was like, you're not coming to my house. Like, you know, like, uh, we're, we're not hanging out like that. I was like, okay, what can we do? So he presented this. I bought studio behind me, you know, and I was like, okay. And I thought I was going to produce and like record the whole record here. But then they're like, bro, you know, Max, like, you know what I'm doing. But in general, so I started just doing the FaceTime thing. So I was shown what Chris wrote, like on that particular song, that chorus. And then uh, all my other riffs that I just had like, stupidly laying around forever and uh, piano stuff. And uh, I just, we're on FaceTime and we're also on audio at the same time. So like, okay, so here's how this is. Or even I have it recorded on my cell phone, so I'll send it to Max. Okay, listen to this. Can you figure that out? Cool. And uh, 
but that song in general, like it was like a lot of coffee and then each side, like the boom, boom, just taking Chris's chord progression, which is uh, cool. And just like, I'm going to be honest, that's, that's not something easy to pull off. Like, you know, like from where it starts to where it goes, I, I think it's very intelligent and cool. You know, I'm just feeling myself right there, but, uh, or, or feeling the band at that point. And then like, let's say like the midsection, that was a riff that I wrote maybe six years ago. Yeah. And, uh, sick. It's just good. Or like, uh, Doc knows very well, like, uh, like Springfield summer or, or stuff like that. Like some of those riffs are so old. Springfield summer, I think it's like 15 years old, maybe even more. Yeah. Well, you had a vert, he had a version of it. I remember when I first moved to LA, that was all kind of distorted and up tempo and almost sounded like Foo Fighters type stuff. And it's the same riff, but he's just playing it more chill and like, like, acoustic you know actually let's talk about the second song on the record never be the same which is a track that i did contribute to and so essentially that was something he would go and work with max and then this was going back to the previous record and i went down to vegas to go okay you guys are working and this is me interjecting myself to try not to screw with their process but see if i can help out and give some you know, some input and just, just get a, a little bit of my personality. And so essentially they had maybe a half dozen tunes and I would come in and go and just go, Hey, what about this right here? What about this right here? And so, so with that one, I actually, I think they, the verse might've actually been the main riff or something. It was something like it was, it just wasn't, there wasn't a lot happening. And so I basically was there in the room and it was Megadeth, but what I was actually inspired by was beat it which is like but uh, the the verse and beat is like did it did did it did and it and right so ours is bet did it and 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 it so it's like beat it meets countdown to extinction <laughs> but i but i but i wanted something that had space and had beat down to extinction yeah exactly <laughs> also doc remember that that song was supposed to be on nation and then we our second record and then we tried to uh, when Tommy was in the band, we tried to do it on their record. He just like wasn't feeling it. And, but even, yeah. I, I think that's a blessing. And then like, what if when you added to it was amazing? And then the wah thing came in. Like, so it's like yeah, the whammy this. thing. Yeah. yeah. And I also wah. so that song too. I the the pre-chorus, it was the same. It was the you same chord. No, well, kind of yes and no because you guys had it. You had the same chord progression but it was just very boring, like what you had. I was just like, it didn't have texture to it, so that I took it and then started kind of arpeggiating, doing the ring out chords, and I, you know, and I kind of, so I took what was already there and just expanded on it, and then, yeah, and then when you guys went back to the song, that's when you brought the key change in the main riff and then put the whammy stuff in there, so that was, that was something that was very collaborative, but it took shape over a couple years, right? That wasn't, and so it's this thing of sometimes, when you don't put a song out right away and you sit on it, you think of ways to improve it down down the line sometimes, you know? And then... Yeah, I can't imagine that song being the way it was when we started. Yeah, and what's funny is I wrote a guitar solo for it back then, and then when, what, you know, when we first wrote it, and then when I went back to work on the solo, I was like, all right, I'll, let me play that. But then what I ended up being on the record was a complete... A comp solo of just like me improvising and it ended up working way better so you know so that's that's just an example of something that started with john and max 
I put my two cents in and then it becomes something a little more collaborative over the course of some time. And then that one, the lyrics and, and melodies you did with Brandon, right? Yes. I did all the lyrics on that. Sounds like a relationship song, but like it's uh, I was drunk watching an Unsolved Mysteries about a tsunami and I forget her name. That was supposed to be the title of the of the song and I just couldn't find it through my text, so, but I forgot it. I tried to look it up on, on so I can't find that episode, but there's a tsunami that hit and this lady claims that she was possessed by a bunch of people. And uh, so it's like, you're, you're dead, you're searching, and like, this happened to hell. You know, I don't know. I wrote a lot of lyrics on this record and uh, my style, I don't know, I just like being vague, you know, and, and I think it's fun. I'd like to hear a, a bit about lyrics and how you go about it anything that you do a lot when you're writing lyrics any any particular way that you go about it maybe most of the time or every time or whatever all the records i've ever done that was never my job so like the record was all kind of almost done right doc you know and then like but we had to like change lyrics and so it kind of fell on me so this is like my, my first time doing this and um yeah i've learned a lot like looking back it's so embarrassing, I would say. Uh, writing, like, hey, man, like, what do you think of this? It's very subjective. Like, what lyrics sound good to you or what what, so, what so, sound corny to per, what person one will sound completely legitimate to person two. And so this is kind of funny thing, Trey, just give you another wrinkle on the lyric stuff and songwriting is that, so uh, DL joined the band uh, March 2021 and pretty much once we decided to have him in the band, he was in the recording studio like a week later recording the record. But like I'd say a good 60% of the songs or half the songs, either the melodies were written, but we had to rewrite lyrics. Or sometimes we'd have a song like House of Cards where I think the only thing we had was the pre-chorus thing. But other than that, there was nothing. And so we were literally writing the lyrics and melodies in the room. And it'd be like John, D.L., and um, Josh and myself, you know, kind of, and I was more like the background, you know, I, I chip in here and there maybe, but um, you know, something like that, it came together literally in a, in a few hours. And sometimes they'd have verse- 20 minutes. Yeah, like they'd have verse one, they'd figure it out, right? Write it. And then while DL was tracking it, John would go in the other room and write the second verse. You know, so things things like that, just like off off the dome and really collaborating like, oh, like, hey, what about this line or what? Everyone have their little little notepads and just kind of bounce it off. And it, it worked really well and really it was very fluid. And everyone, you know, it was good, very good chemistry, you know, and it was very productive. I would say this about writing lyrics. I've learned a little like listening to the record. Sometimes I'm very vague, you know, and I think being witty, like I'm way more to like I'm way. Like, uh, that I like a dark sense of humor and stuff, but it's sometimes like some of the stuff I was bringing there, like, you really think that's cool? And I'm like, I honestly believe in this lyric so hard. And they're like, like, they're like, it's a joke, dude. You know, to each his own. I don't know. It's funny, but definitely, uh, it's a learning process. I think Dave Grohl said it best. Like, you just got to say that lyric that is just like, you know, so simple and dry that it like connects. And, uh, that's not my style. I'd rather be like elusive. I laughed out fucking loud at a line in one of your songs. Don't tell me it's the IDK song. LOL. 
Dude, it was it's it's not funny because it's silly. It's funny because it was so ballsy and it fucking worked so well. It fit the vibe of the song. I lost my shit and I was like, that's fucking genius. Stupid but genius. I love it. But if, I, I'm sure everybody like, and their grandma talks he, to you about that. Who who wrote it? Well, first off, you know how I call that right off the bat. Yeah. I thought I I, I mean I I presume that's what it was. Of too, course. But. <laughs> and God, that was such a problem with the uh, the band or, or even like uh you know girlfriends of the band like you, you can't say that that's you would how that would happen i was in uh you know javier uh do you know animals leaders yeah, yeah so it was, i was in his living room this guy named aaron bagby who was in god knows what bands we initially wrote that song just me him uh, no javier was there but he wasn't writing it and my ex-girlfriend so it was like we were writing that song for her like her project because she's a singer. And uh, I just remember like me and Aaron were just like sitting there. Uh, we've been drinking, you know, and it was, <laughs> he's like, Hey, Hey, can I say it? Like, cause we were struggling to find that. And he goes, what about IDK? I, uh, LOL. And I was like, Oh, that's fucking amazing. And uh, he's like, are you fucking serious? Like, come on, dude. Like I, I stand by it still. Uh, People, I don't understand why people are so upset about that. Like, they think it's cheesy. I think it's, it's, it's totally sarcastic. In my opinion, the best lyrics on the record are that song, by far. Yeah, but I, so I, I think the, the, the criticism that, that I heard from my girlfriend was that, oh, that's something that, like, you know, a Gen Z 21-year-old girl would say at a party or something that it, that it was, like, out of character. But my, my view on it, was the fact that it stands out, that it's something that you remember, that it's something that even if people go a little like, you know, double take or like, oh, why would that, why would you put that in a metal band song? I think is like, hey, the point is for people to pay attention. The point is to have something that is idiosyncratic that sticks, you know, and sometimes that's that's saying something. And so it's like wasn't my line, but I thought it, I thought it was cool. And I, I don't know. I just I just think all that stuff is very very subjective. Look, if you did something and people had a fucking reaction, a strong reaction, you're doing something right. To me, I adore the contrast. Like I know what DL looks like and <laughs> imagining him singing that fucking killed me. I loved it. I think it's amazing and to me that's great songwriting. I understand why people would get upset about it. But I think you guys should be very, very proud of it. That's my personal take. Like in my opinion, I like I remember like sending that to the label. I was I, I think that's like should have been the first single. And I remember Doc was like, You're fucking hot. <laughs> like I was like Well, I listen, I mean who knows? But like I get it, but I don't, but I still believe in that song in a different way that I think anybody else does. I think it's one of the best songs on the album, and part of that is because it's the most different song maybe on the album besides Springfield Summer. And me, I'm a, I'm a melody guy, so the, the chord progressions for me are, are right up my alley. Like I, I, the only thing I did with that song was I wrote the the guitar solo, and but it's probably the first Bad Wolves song where the chord progressions in a guitar solo allowed me the landscape to really do something that felt really kind of melodically ambitious in a, in a, in a different kind of way. So. I'm a big fan of that song. Yeah. I mean, once again, I, I feel like the proof is in the pudding in a certain way. Like, 
one way or the other, like no matter how y'all in the band feel about it versus like what loudmouth complainers on the internet who feel like their uh, masculinity is being impugned or something by a line like that feel, once again, your music is tearing up the charts. You're going around the world with huge bands. Well, I mean, under normal circumstances. And you're making these kinds of decisions. You're, you're you know, putting a lot of thought and energy into it. Like you're standing up for the, for a lyric that you that you really feel strongly about getting on there or not. And in a lot of ways, the decisions that you're making about an album like this have a greater impact than like, I don't know, a band who hasn't been as successful, hasn't had um, this these kinds of huge success um, numbers and, and all that. It seems like they're probably more contentious de- decisions, but in the songwriting process, it's basically the same every time. Like you put a lot of yourself into it and you're putting yourself out there and you want to represent yourself a certain way, but you're going about it very collaboratively when you have this kind of a thing, you're like, you want this lyric in a song. Is there a, a final tiebreaker in these? Like, was there somebody who gets to be like, nope, that's not going on this fucking album? Or like, yes, absolutely, we're doing that. Well, to be honest, Doc's girlfriend, Jasmine, like, had such a problem with it. that like, I, it spoke to me emotionally how much she was against it. So I just remember being like, Jasmine, I will change it. Like, uh, like well, I was going to change it. We just never did. I, I forgot to. <laughs> well i i think it's a situation where with this record especially there was such good energy you know when we were like kind of finishing these songs because most of them by the time dl joined you know the instrumentals were more or less done and then we wrote a handful of songs and it's weird because two two songs that so there's one song that dl wrote the basis of um which was a didn't didn't make the record and another song that was between it was like John, me, Javi from Animals. Did anyone else uh, contribute to that? It's up in Smoke. Yeah, it didn't make the record, but uh, it's gonna come out on an EP that we're coming on soon. But uh, we I just uh, signed the publishing splits on that. I think it, I think it's uh, Chris Kane's on there. You're on there, uh, Javi and myself. I think that's it. DL wrote wrote uh, the vocals and lyrics, right? Are you, are you are you talking about I don't want to feel, or are you talking about no? I'm up in smoke. DL wrote the chorus lyrics, and then I changed them a little bit. But those two songs, which aren't on the record, to some degree, uh, gave us an insight into maybe the next phase of the band, where it's a where it's a bit more collaborative within the band from the jump you know and it was kind of like this new insider okay what is this going to feel like and it was it was great i mean and there was a little contention about which songs should make the record which songs shouldn't there was some you know disagreements about that not too much i was like doc what should be on the record and there was there was like maybe one song that we barely argued about but for anyone who cares listen like doc he's like the dude like i get too caught up in it and i'm like doc you you make decisions like uh the set list live or like the the track listing or what songs should make it on the record. If I disagree, I'll I'll speak it. But like that's pretty much Doc's show. I I would say. Okay, so if I had it completely up to me, it's not totally my show because some of these things are already in, in motion. Like I didn't want Wildfire to make the record, and I think I wanted I, I don't want to feel just because I wanted the record. Oh God, that was such a pain in the ass, Wildfire. Yeah. Well, well, it was to me. There's the the curation aspect of it and this and, and to me this is actually part of 
what I would consider the broader creative process, which you know, which is presentation, right? Once you have these songs done and just deciding what what is this record going to be? And I kind of felt, I kind of still feel that the record is, it's like 5% a little too mainstream. I want a little more grit in there. You know, I, I just want a little, so I, I literally just wanted one of the more kind of radio type songs to be off the record and one heavier song to be on the record just to give it a little better bounce. And I wanted, and this was... Remember the first 12 songs I wrote for this album? You're yeah. like, I don't know, dude. Like, there's so much heavier. To me, it's actually, there's some that are heavier and some that aren't, but it's it's... And dude, there's two super heavy songs that I wrote that didn't or co-wrote that didn't make that didn't make the record either. So there so the record could have had a completely different different tinge to it. But a lot of so so John, when he first started working on the record, he's describing it as heavy. Yes, there's some heavy stuff, but he started getting he started writing this stuff that was very like synth and almost like eighties um like it was eighties eighties funk. <laughs> He like he was on this kind of different train, and a lot of it, bro. Eighty fuck, bro. Like eighties heavy as fuck. Like uh, I, I still have pause with that. Like when I get like you know like sit by myself, smoke a little weed, and I'm like, God damn, I can't. And like I remember GL was like trying to sing one of them, and he's like, I can't do this, dude. Like this is like you know, I'm like I get to listen to your voice. Yeah, and listen, we we can get really into that because it's weird because we're talking about material people haven't heard, so they don't really have a, a context for it. But there's many iterations of what this band could be, and this is, goes back to the kind of curation aspect. And I also wanted, so uh, do you know who Sahaj Tikkatin oh, yeah. is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love Sahaj. So Sahaj co-wrote a song called Classical on, on the record. So I like sent him the record and to check it out. And he's like, on the case, he's like, man, that song needs to be early in the track listing. And it was like right before we were getting, and I, was, and I talked to John, I was like, yo, man, I think we should put on the case closer on the record. And by that point, it was kind of like too late. So that's like the two things. Like, I, I wish it was one heavier song on the record, and I wish on the case would have been early in the track listing. But such is life. Sahaj is great. He helped us write a couple songs on our album too. And that was like the first time I've, personally let ever let anybody else have something to say about any of my songs and it was absolutely mind-blowing and i was like fuck you're right that made the song better and then i was like he's great he's i'm gonna great. do this more often but i think it's really interesting hearing about the songs that didn't make the cut because what a lot of people don't really think about is that the songs that are on the album are the tip of the iceberg you write a lot more generally most people are writing more songs a lot more songs than wind up on the album. Like sometimes it's double or triple or absurd numbers more songs written or at least uh, started than wind up on the albums. And, and sometimes because it's trial and error, you write something and you, you think it's good or whatever. And then you, by the time it comes to decide what's going on the album, you're like, this is something we tried and it didn't work. I think we have to put in this that this album was made against the backdrop of the pandemic where essentially the band started writing at the beginning of the pandemic because our album cycle was ruined, you know, the touring cycle. And so there was just, like I said, John probably has 15 instrumentals, right? That didn't make the record. I oh, had a handful I was, of, I was so bummed. Like I, I went all chips in. I was like, all right, guys, I think, I think it was like 12 songs or just instrumental. And like, I like, you know, share that link. This is when Tommy was in the band, and he wasn't happy with almost all of it. You weren't either. 
like, and I was, you know, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow when you put in a lot of work. And then I learned from that experience that, um, like, doing, like, Nation and the first record worked out cool, but, like, uh, this one, like, when I put in so much work into shit, and then it was just, like, it's not there. Or, no, I liked it. I'll tell you, it's, not I liked it. Was it... Yes, that's it. and this is what I'm talking about—the curation aspect, right? But I can still disagree with you completely. Like, of I course. still have fantasies that like this record would have been way sicker if like some of those songs made it. But that's like the internal tension with any band, and I, I wouldn't say all bands, but so, a lot of bands. If it truly is a collective, collaborative environment, you might have five people that want five different things, right? And the the way you correspond with each other is figuring out that balance, right? So if if even though John is the main songwriter, if John brings a handful of songs and everyone involved goes, hey, John, this is cool, but we don't really know this is the way we want to go, it's up to John at that point to go, I'm going to be Napoleon, I'm going to be the dictator, and I'm going to be like, fuck y'all, this is going on the record no matter what, or is it, do we want an environment where everyone feels like it's the right direction because i think a lot of stuff is great or most of it i think is is great but i you know what we envision with the band is is might be different and same thing with anyone else in the band right everyone might have their own vision yeah but my opinion about whatever i do or whatever in my brain i'm always like doctor's final say in general like you know like like if you if you're not vibing it i'm like fuck like damn like uh, well, come on. Let's not, let's get let's get too crazy with that. So let's tell another story. A song called Springfield Summer. So I basically like they were working on the song, and I remember they sent me this like demo of it, or like I was in the studio, and so this was a song that's interesting about this was we finished the album, quote unquote, or we thought we finished the album, and the guy who uh, owns our label and the head of our management, Alan Kovac, goes, guys, I you know I feel like you're missing this kind of song, like an up tempo major key type song something you know that's taking some risks like you know he felt the album was too safe called him, just caught him completely he said the record's amazing but there's nothing i haven't heard like there's not a song on there that sounds like nothing you've ever done before and i was like ah god I, you know what like you always want to think like the big waves where like, you don't understand man like uh but i was like well he's fucking right all right and uh, I had a voice memo of that scene. And I like, just, I was like, what about this? Cause I just, you know, I'm like, you know me. Like, I'm just like, well, what about this? Let's just move quick, man. Wrap it up. And I said, like, there you go. There you go. Like, <laughs> I just happened to have something groundbreaking right here on my voice memos. Here you go. There he's working on it with uh, Brandon. I go to the studio and they're like, and the chorus, I'll tell you, it, I think so. I think, um, DL had had played some guitars to it, and there was like a wrong chord or something. Something just sounded weird in the chorus. It's done sound wrong now. Everything sounds fine now. But I was like, man, the, the chorus wasn't really hitting for me. So I went with my homie Mike Montoya, and I was like, yo, and I had this vision of like this like, you know, kind of like bounce, kind of like pop punk emo part or something. I don't know. I had this fucking thing. So I spent a day with him, and, and I you know, I sent it to the guys, and then... We kind of beefed up the part at Joseph's and then, but then DL kept trying to write to it and I wrote to it and it just wasn't really happening. But then they never told me <laughs> and they just put it back to the old way. <laughs> Bro, we did the homework on that. We tried every single which way you could do. 
No, it didn't work. I agree. I agree, but y'all didn't tell me. Y'all just put it back and then just like, here's the song. <laughs> well, Doc, tell an interesting story. I know it's like the record we just released, but uh, man, you and me had major problems over this song called Faux, right, For a Friend. Oh, For a Friend. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you were literally, Doc, you were like, at one point, you're like, I think you were like thinking about leaving the band over it. Like, you know, like you were so pissed that like, I just took my opinion and just, did my own thing with it and edited out. No, let, let me tell the story. So me and Chris Kane uh, demoed this demoed this song um, at my house, and then we went and brought it to Max, and then we we worked on it together, and, and we, we made an instrumental, and it was like basically like half of Chris Kane's riffs, some of my riffs. Max kind of chimed in and kind of we we call Mac we call he maxifies a riff like we'll take a cool riff, but then makes it like thirty nine percent cooler with with some little things that he does and it was like my favorite instrumental that we had done from from all those sessions and when they were working on vocals i guess tommy wasn't vibing with the verse so what john did was he completely got rid of the verse and then took a verse from another song that was sick and so they just like and i said they and they just frankenstein the song <laughs> and it wasn't that it was bad it was just that it it felt inarticulate it felt lazy and they didn't check with me. So this is a song I had like, like you have an egg on like a pillow or something. You're trying to. But my favorite, my favorite thing about this verse that you were attached to that I agree with Tommy, uh, like, all right, cool. Let's, I want to use this other riff from a different thing. Uh, like Chris Kane's like, I wrote the riff. He's like, I don't like it either. It kind of sounds like, you know what? I would say it sounds like a, like a tired shadows fall riff or something like like I love Josh Fall, cool, but like you just I will never convince you that that is is like correct. And like you were that's why I love you, dude. Like you were so pissed. Like you it took you a lot it took you almost years to get over that. And like No, I'm still not over it. Cause it's a, it was because what you put there was a stereotypical Bad Wolves gent riff. That is a Dick-ass riff that I wrote. It's fine. It doesn't stick out. No one, I've never heard anyone go, man, the verse for For a Friend changed my life, bro. That That's never happened because it's just a standard Bad Wolves gent verse. It's what it is. I'm sorry. It's fine. How many times have we changed anybody's lives? Come on, man. Listen, learn to live. That verse, that song is a B, you know, B minus, C plus version of that. When that shit came out, People, that shit changed lives, bro. I saw, yo, get this, Trey. We're at rehearsal, right? Jamming. And we hear another drummer <laughs> in another room playing Learn to Live. <laughs> so don't tell me shit didn't change lives, wow. bro. You know what's sick about uh, that song, Learn to Live, which was the first song. I, I had like a different vision for the band, whatever. But uh, there's so much about Learn to Live. Like, are you familiar with that song at all? Yeah. Yeah. Like, to me, it's really important. Like, uh, there's so much about it. Uh, if anyone cares, like the history behind that is I wrote that right before I left Devil Driver, I was like unhappy, like musically. So I did three songs on the case, learn to live. I can't remember the third one. I detuned the band, like, and I like delivered the demos for that. And like, Des was like, the fuck is this? <laughs> I was like, dude, this is where I want to take the band. I want to like change the tuning up. I, I like that open A to A. I still think that song was way sicker on demo. Because they moved to seven strings, and I don't, I, I, dude, I'm terrible at seven strings. 
But so I wrote all that on six strings. So the tuning he's talking about is the nothing face tuning. Yeah. So it's like basically a low. So on a six string, it's a low A and then the high A octave. So the rest of the guitar would be tuned standard except for a low A. Okay. Uh, Pantera also used this tuning in G with the weird, you know, Pantera kind of like 442 whatever or whatever their their little weird thing they do with the in, um, intonation mm -hmm. or calibration, excuse me. But they like was that song, uh, Sandblasted Skin, like bam, 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 that they'd use that tuning. So he wrote a lot of stuff like that. And then some of that's, and so the first demos when it was still called, the band was still called Eye of Tongues was recorded like that. And then later, you had Max redo it in seven strings in the tuning we use now, which is... Yeah, and I remember being, like, bummed. But fun fact, I learned, like, how to gent on guitar, like, being on tour. I was, I still am obsessed with After the Barrel. Like, <laughs> so fucking obsessed. And, like, I remember, like, Trent, like, dude, tell me, like, how that fucking... Like, I would just be in awe of that band when I would watch them. Like, what the... Oh, my God. It was, like, I saw it for... I took... I took, uh, we did it like Periphery's first tour was with uh, Devil Driver. So it's like I started understanding that, but to me, after there, it was just way more my speed. And uh, so I was like, dude, I need to figure out, even production wise, like how to accomplish this kind of like gent stuff. And uh, Wes, who was in the Faceless, uh, Wes how Hulk, yes, uh, he man. was in the Faceless at that time. And we became friends. And he's like, dude, I sent him some demos. And he was like, dude, you need to like go to Diego from volume. And I was like, really? And uh, Diego almost produced the last Devil Driver record. Like, and that little deal we had, I was like, dude, if you demo these songs with me, because I need help on understanding, I need to do this right. I want to rip off Gent, but like not so bad. And uh, so God bless his soul. You know, he passed away. Yes. Yeah. So it's like, to me, it's like such a special time. Like uh, he was like, sitting there with dude his dad would come in and she'd be like okay like uh i've seen diego do this and like west and she's like dude you don't you don't got the right hand here's how you do it and then he he was teaching me how to do it and i was like will you record it fuck it and he goes no dude it's like you got to do it like uh and just <sighs> learning that like still blows my mind like how trent and uh, diego would do it and uh like 100 percent, i was like you know how everyone like became new metal like wannabe bands i was like i all of a sudden i was like dude i'm a wannabe jet band for sure <laughs> like i just i was obsessed with like how fucking sonically it sounds and how you play that type and uh doc will tell you when he joined the band like learning that fucking how to rhythmically do that stuff is it's such a different program and uh learning that from diego was just like fucking unreal and it, he would be like dude you're like I was like, dude, that's about as tight as it gets. That dance, 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 dance. Like, and he'd be like, honestly, bro, that's like about 60, 65%. I was like, what? <laughs> and, then, and then he would just put on like uh, whatever, like Berserker or whatever song from uh, In Dreams. And he'd be like, see, you hear that? And I was like, ah, we would AB it. But he wouldn't let me let him play it just for a demo purpose, you know? Uh, but yes, on the case too, that like, Man, uh, that riff didn't have the wind. Are you familiar with that song too? Uh, not off the dome, but it's the it's like track six on on the new album. Oh, okay. It's like yeah, it's yeah, yeah. the heaviest song. I just I'm just bad with song titles. <laughs> but yeah, okay, gotcha. To me, it's mm -hmm. like 
it's just cool that that song sat around for like seven or eight years. And uh, to me, it's like by far the definition of what I love, like me and my finest, in, in my own stupid opinion. Like uh, those riffs, like you can't fuck with them in my opinion. And like getting Diego's and then like, I would send those to After the Burial, like, dude, uh, do I have your blessing? Like, they're like, dude, you're ripping us off. But <laughs> it's nasty enough where like, we, like literally like we approve, we approve. I was so trying to tread waters politely, you know? Well, I had, I had, I had Misha on, on my podcast. That was your best podcast, by the way. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, Misha's the, the is, is the G, such a, such a smart guy. But I was like, you know, f- feeling some kind of way, almost like did a band like Bad Wolves bum you out because, you know, we're kind of appropriating this style, but then presenting it in a very... Uh, to a, a much more mainstream audience, you know, something that's more more palatable, and he was, you know, he was totally cool with it, you know. That's great, and and I have the I have the headline for the podcast now. We wanted to be a gent ripoff band, pretty much. Um, Blabbermouth, pick it up. Blabbermouth. <laughs> anyway, continue. But literally, man, like uh, like disobey our first record. So many of my friends who usually kind of casually pay attention to it was like, have you listened to some of those songs on that record? Like some of those songs, like. I'm like, yo, like, it's, it's straight nasty in my opinion. And I remember, like, uh, you know, like, Bale and Meyer, like, yeah, man, I heard Zombie or whatever, but we'd be, like, at a party drinking, so happy to be around those dudes. I'm like, dude, have you really heard? Like, and then play a song like Shapeshifters, and they'd be like, what? Like, I had no idea you guys were doing shit like this. Um, and we kind of, like, unadopted that style because Doc was pretty influential in that, too. It's just, like, it's proud of those songs I am. They're just not our fan base. Like, especially the song called Toast to Ghost, the last one. Like, I, I was like hell bent. That would be our first single that we should. Re- I was so bummed when I got outvoted at Guyu Coffee. We were drinking beers and they're like, dude, learn to live half the beer. I was, I was like, dude, it's like a mirror after a bear ripoff. And they're like, dude, you're so fucking not wrong about maybe it's derivativeness, but I was just scared that it was so derivative that we're gonna get clowned and like we just we didn't like at all like it was like whoa i was so dead wrong yeah sometimes it 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 works that way and the the way i kind of discovered that was by watching other people listen to it that weren't necessarily the most musically inclined and like you put something on and you just see how normal people react to it and and i noticed that that song was popping, you know, when I was, I was showing people. And sometimes you have to like divorce your, yourself from, from it because you're too close to it and you're a musician. So you listen to it with the musician's brain. And sometimes musicians, we need more kind of information to keep us interested in something. Whereas regular Joes tend to connect on a different level. It's usually it's with beats and feel and feels and, melodies and and hooks you know that's usually what what grabs normal people and so and it's always tough even with this record i mean and maybe it's like this with every record with with bad wolves where it's what's the single what should we go to war with and it's so much internal debate (laughs) about what that should be it's absurd how much we debate about it and how i think i'm right Uh, i remember on, on our second record like big phone call like you know jackie kaiser and she stepped up she's like Crying Game needs to be the first single. And then, like, Tommy's like, I'll quit the band if that happens. Like, you know, it's like, Jesus Christ. Like, and uh, it's just, who knows who maybe would have been a little bit more right. 
I don't know, but I'll be there. Remember how pissed you were that like it used to be what was it used to be called? What was it called? Well, no, I'm coming up. You guys changed two song titles and made them worse. <laughs> yeah, but Alan Kovacs, our, our like owner of our label and management, he's like, if you change like song titles that like are the kind of things that are more memorable, then it goes are uh, not even memorable. Just uh, typing in like the algorithm will get it more streams. And like, I'm in no place to tell Alan Kovac like no in my opinion like so i was like cool no problem i would have told him no (laughs) no but then i checked in with you you were like i can't believe you you, you're doing this i'm like yeah you know what i mean it's like yeah uh, back in the day it was called 1994 like you were so pissed and you're right i think it's a better title but I don't know. Yeah, you know? it's the, all three. Yeah, I actually forgot about that one. They're all better titles. So the whole thing was, I'll be there. I'm like, the song is like a get you pumped up song. And I'm coming up. It's like, yo, that's the energy of the song. I'll be there. You know what I think about? Jackson 5. I'll be there. That's what I, it, it's not. So the energy doesn't fit. And the second one, the second track in the album, No Messiah, was called Love Goes Black, which is the, the lyrics in the bridge. Love Goes Black, that sounds iconic, right? I could see someone getting that tattooed on their back. Ain't no one getting No Messiah. We had no masters on this album now, No Messiah. Next next album, no money. <laughs> <laughs> we put a no and an M word. And so I just thought that was just lame. And then 1994, man, it's like, it's like if you're looking at an album and you see the song titles, if you have like a number, it almost stands out. It feels more iconic to me that, you know. I went saw Corn, and they, they had these windbreakers now. Oh my God, it just says 1994 on it. It's so hard. Like, I bought that with pride. Like, fuck yeah. <laughs> but, like, I'll be there. Like, interesting. Like, that chorus, I think, is the best chorus I've ever by far written musically. I was so obsessed with it, but, like, could not figure out what to do musically. There was a lot of fails on that. And uh, to be honest, um, I got real blackout drunk and, like, forgot that I had to go a session to write the, you know, vocals. And, uh, I manned up and I went like I could barely really walk, but I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna go. And then it's like we doing thing and I was like, what about a I'm I'm kinda in that like it just came like at a drunk thing. It's like I would never advocate that kind of behavior, but like it did come out of that. And like, you know, our old singer was very ridiculing, you know, but like even him, he's like, yo, that's fucking sick. Like I'm I'm obsessed still that day of course. Like it's just it's cheesy as fuck, but it's awesome. And I say live, it's the one song where it's like a melodic chorus that actually the, it moves the crowd. Like like when it it kicks in, it's like boom! It has it has like a, a almost like a EDM drop or something. It has that that kind of impact where it actually moves moves the crowd groove wise, and not just it's not just about the melody on the chorus. I wanna um... you know you know what I get bummed about too. I found the old version of that where. If you're doing Tommy raps on uh, on the on the verses, you know what? Talking too much about a nation. <laughs> Some of DLs. Imagine being DL stepping into this band. It's very difficult, right? That's so fucking complex and just like what a character and person and persona our ex singer was, and just like so many people are like that are my friends or family. Like yo, seriously, like he's better than that guy. And you're like, oh, thank you. You know, that's cool. But like DL is a fucking gem. Like his voice is fucking nuts. 
Did you guys like know that he could sing? Because he, I've never heard him sing before. So I didn't know. Yeah, you want to tell your story first? I when I I just remember there was the whole thing where they it was like a leak, like oh they picked they got DL to be their singer, and I was like, what? DL the producer and guitar player, formerly of fucking the Acacia Strain, like no 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 no, you, that's that's not he doesn't sing, and then you heard him and it, and it was like what the fuck. So when our on our second record, um, you know, like most of, almost all the vocal melodies would fall on me, Brandon. And if we couldn't get that done, we would go outside. And on that chorus, we were just, we were just dry. Also very lazy. It was like, I don't, I was like, I don't even want to deal with it. And Wes was like, you know, Alluvial Wes was like, you remember DL saying? Like, I was like, no, he's like, just send him the chorus. And I sent it to him and he sent it back. I was like, done. Tommy too was like, fuck, amazing. So in the back of my brain, I was like, if anything ever happens, you know, <laughs> that could work. If anything ever happens very soon. Well, it, it's funny. My, my story with, with DL, he was, um, when Bad Wolves first came out, he had just done my podcast and we had caught up and he just was raving about the band, just like how much he loved loved it and was basically kind of vying. He's like, yo, man, if you guys need a third guitar player, <laughs> or, you know, he just loved, he just loved the band. And... Then I, you know, then I heard, you know, the stuff him him helping on, on on the next record. But then he sent me a cover of him doing a Seven Dust song called Skeleton Song, and I checked it out. I was like, I was like, holy! And that, I didn't know that he that he sang, and it was it was unbelievable, you know. So kind of like John it was in the back of my head. I was like, that, that dude seemed seemed pretty goddamn good, and, and the, <laughs> you know, and it stylistically it works. Yeah, there was a there was a moment on tour. I can't remember. There was some drama that happened, and I I did after I knew he had written that chorus to uh, consumerists or whatever killed the consumerists, and that's why I texted him like super late. Hey, dude, would you ever like would you ever think about this? Like, if it, and he was like, are you serious? like he was like totally down, like cool, and then everything worked out for a bit longer, but. Man, so many singers we were trying out, like, and I was so nervous that because Doc had like way different visions, and we have to express everything that everyone has a, like an avenue with. Doc was very, what's her name, Kayla, mm-hmm. incredible woman singer, and it was hard to say no because she's so incredible. Like, you know, like it was so hard for me like to go all chips in on her, like, ah, oh, like a woman singer, like uh, it, it was just, you know what I mean? Like, just it was hard to think about replacing someone with that kind of vocal approach but she was so amazing but we did the final votes and i was so nervous that doc you're gonna be like nope because if it was uneven i think we decided right that uh if it's uneven then we'll go back to the drawing board and uh you we all unanimously voted dl fuck thank god (laughs) well i think this is a good pivot to a question that i have or a, a very general question about so you said earlier that you had to like rewrite a lot of stuff, a lot of the lyrics and and melodies and things. Just lyrics. Just lyrics, not melodies. Okay. There was one. Not, there was one melody for sure. The pre-chorus to "On the Case" was a new melody. When you've got a, a song most of the way there, is it? Ge- do you generally write the lyrics as you're going, or is it mostly like instrumentals and then you're sort of putting stuff on top of it? And then does that, did that make it, either of those approaches, did it make it easier or harder to sort of replace the lyrics after the fact? Almost always in instrumentals and then write the melody to it. And then the lyrics come last. With this band, once in a blue moon, like 
sometimes the melody was very strong. And the, for the first time in my life, we would consider stripping the music and rewriting it based on the, the melody. And now I used to be so against that. Like, I was like, let's fucking just know how it works. Dude. And <laughs> it is very powerful. Like strip the mute after the melody is sick, strip the music and do a couple different versions of stuff. And sometimes it sucks but a lot of times it gets more cohesive when you're doing rock radio. You know what I mean? Like I'm so busy and I love like technicality. Like I'm so conflicted about wanting to be this band and that band. And But like when you know your lane, when you strip the music back away and you go, oh, okay, the melody can actually carry it and just be simple. Yeah. But lyrics are always loud. Okay. Interesting. I want to start doing that thing like Hetfield though, where Hetfield would like have lines or a, a title just around of like, you know, like sad, but true was a title they had, or, you know, don't tread on me. And I like that because in some ways it, it can like, uh, like a mission statement. Yeah. It's like an intentionality about a, a, a concept like, like, and that, that's what I was going back before about those song titles getting changed. That bothered me is that a song title having, you know, in the same way, like a band having a great name or a film having a great title or a video game, something that it can grab you or make you, oh, that, that song title feels like, mm. or like sometimes a song title can almost become a phrase that sticks with you. You know, like uh, I remember when I heard the song Blurred Lines, I was like, something about that title, like just stuck with me, you know, and that's just, so that's, that's just something I, I, I'd like to actually start thinking about conceptually, you know, I think could be interesting. Yeah, like on the case should be called the hollow, but like on the case was just made. It's like yo, I'm on. It's like that comes from Beat Detective. If anyone remembers Beat Detective, that little <laughs> dude smoking a cigarette, his little icon. Like remember that dude with the Carmen San Diego hat? Yeah. Like no, oh, I'm sick. Yeah. It's like a, we would. That was a joke. Like ah, I'm on the case. See, you can't you can't fucking cut it, John. So we're gonna have to Beat Detective. You know, uh, <laughs> a song inspired by Pro Tools. Incredible. Yeah, but what Doc saying like. Uh, yesterday, I came up with like two of them. Uh, I want to call a song called Benched. Like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Dude, to be honest, I start a solo band and call it Bench. Like, that's a hard ass name. Like, I looked it up, someone bought the domain, and there's zero followers. Like, I'm like, yo, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trademark that. Just based off that title, I can see like a sitcom or a show about like, the guys at the end who like are professional athletes, but who never play <laughs> like that. That's a whole show right there. It's like the two, the guys at the end of the bench who never get in the game and just their lives and how funny that is. Remember, remember you know, we were called they, I songs and uh, I was basically told like, this won't work if you don't change it. I was so against it. Like, dude, I have tongues, man. I put so much thought in this. And then I, I just bad wolves. And you were like, are you fucking kidding me? Like <laughs> you were, you were so bummed on that. I was like, uh, Oh my God. You were like, it sounds like a shitty sports team or something like some <laughs> high school fucking basketball team. And I was like, dude, I don't care anymore. Like I'm, I'm so over it. Like this is what it's going to be called. That's not how I remember feeling. Oh, you weren't feeling it at all until that logo came in the Raiders rip off logo. And then you were like, Dude, that shit is sick. Okay. I just think of Doctor Who, and I think that's probably what a lot of nerds think of. But I am mostly fascinated, honestly, to hear the way that you're talking about these things. The sort of conflict between your personal, aesthetic, artistic preferences and taste. And 
also taking into account what is going to work, what's going to be successful commercially, but also carrying the message that you're trying to both artistic and musical and all that and lyrically, like what you're trying to convey and who you are about the band. So I, I, I was I usually ask about that, like how much you consider that in your, you know, how, how it's going to like if it's going to pop off in a live scenario, which is very important for you when you're playing in front of a lot of people, um, how it's going to work for like radio, the thing that, you know, um, the algorithm, Spotify, all this stuff, playlisting. But it seems like you're thinking about it a lot. Starting with album titles, hated the name Disobey, hated the album Nation. Just not a fan. Grown to like it now. But like Dear Monsters to me, probably because I came up with it, I think it's cool. But like, uh, it just speaks to me more. But like, I remember like Nation doesn't even stand for anything. Like, I was like, what? And it was, it was a pretty average Sepultura record too. Like, actually, Better than average. I actually do like that record. I'm the number one case of someone who gets way more in their head than they should. And it's like disobey and the, the artwork was that. I was like, this can't happen. Like, are you serious? It's it's a public domain picture. I remember being at Walmart. It's a video game. It wasn't a video game. It was a it was a like a literally like a straight to DVD movie or something that was like some B movie had the same artwork and the same photo. Holy shit. But like Disobey is like not the worst title or, or it's actually pretty cool. And you had Disobey is a cool title for, if you know where it comes from. You were delivering all this artwork that you want inspired by like They Live, yeah. all the shit. And it, it was going to be cool. And then it turned into literally like the most Neanderthal, like what did you even call it? Like a, just like, yo, a dude with a fucking gun, like a cop. Like I, I was and like, I lost that battle. Like I, couldn't, I was I did, I was so embarrassed to show that to anybody. Like that's tough to say because like it's a good record and stuff, and like I back it. But it, I still look. I, I I can't believe that that happened. Can I speak a little bit to to Trey's broader question about the kind of distance between personal aesthetic and personal kind of like artistic needs and 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 wants to express themselves? Is you have to kind of zoom out and understand that this band kind of became its own beast and its own monster that in many ways was very distant from us. My particular perspective is so I'm someone who joined this thing, obviously, you know, a year or two before it actually became public. So I was working a lot, but from the creative standpoint, I came into something where the wheels were in motion. So I knew I wasn't going to be the guy that was going to reflect my definitive taste on the outset, it was really going to be between John and Tommy because they were the ones who owned the band and it was, you know, they were at the forefront of the kind of that. It was just about maybe getting some of my ideas in there that it can reflect. And then you have all the success. And then, like John said, you actually get to see firsthand what people connect to, what your, who is your fan base, what songs do they identify with. And then you have the member change and you kind of have to go, okay, well, what is the impetus here? Is it to be 100% we're going to be so artistic that we're not going to worry about that because you're in a situation where, you know, and this is with really with any band or business, it's like you have a brand that people have expectations about what that means and what kind of music they're going to get, what kind of live show they're going to get, what kind of music videos they're going to get, what kind of merchandise they're going to get. All that stuff tells a big picture. And so there's a momentum to that 
that if you're too much about what you want personally, then you could kind of screw that up. So it's about kind of respecting what that momentum is and then slowly and then slowly kind of gearing it towards our artistic vision in a way that we feel represents us. Like what I say, even Dear Monsters represents me as an individual. No, but I do think it represents the collective. I think it's a record that I think it's a record everyone when we were done was really proud of. Um, and to some degree, I think the individual aspect, it's like you have to be able to distance yourself from that because it's not a Doc Coyle solo record or John Berkland's solo record, right? There's a lot of hands on this wheel from the songwriters and the producers to the management, to the record label, to our lawyer, to, you know, there's so much that makes this kind of, it feel, it does feel like a big machine of things happening that the entire time I've been in this band, I always felt like just a little piece of a giant puzzle. And so it's, it's this weird thing of being connected with it, but also being like distant from it. It's weird. Remember, uh, we're like trying to do album titles and then I was super sold on Dear Monsters. I like woke out of a dream, like it sounds like so cheesy, but I just woke up and I was like, Dear Monsters, that's cool. I was recently looking at the list of what I thought the album titles would be. They're so bad. It's like hilarious. I'm the number one dude to fuck shit up, like in a bad way. Like, you know, man, let's, let's do this. Like uh, my sarcasm, whatever, like my dark humor, like uh, like I wanted the band to be called Double Trouble. I was, I backed that hard. And then I actually went to Triple Trouble and I like really believed it. I was like, yo, Triple Trouble, that's it, dude. Uh, like I really first class felons. I can be so off the mark. It's like hilarious. But dear monsters, I think for the first time in my life, and I remember sending you like some of the early artwork, and you were just like, dude, when I send you shit, doc, like my heart races. And when when you don't like shit, you don't you don't get back to me. And then I know what's up, and oh, it crushes my own soul. But with the artwork, you were like, when we started, you're like I just don't get it. And I was like, fuck. Like uh, I'm very proud of that artwork. It looks so clean and, and advanced. Um, I also think, too, it's not what our fan base really likes. Yeah, I mean, it, listen, and to, to some degree, I think a lot of this stuff is is about kind of self-gratification, right? In the regard that I think... You want to call the record graphic novel. No, I wanted to call the album Los Angeles. I still stand by that. Oh, oh yeah, then down the fault lines. Remember, like, Los Angeles fault lines and, like... Oh, I was looking at this yesterday. Like, uh, no, I wanted to call it Los Angeles, and I still stand by that. All right, it's hard here, right? You think Los Angeles is the better album title than Dear Monsters? Yes, I think it's more iconic, but that's me, you know. I think you know why? Because album titles named after places always feel more iconic. Iowa, New Jersey, like you know the Bon Jovi album. Like that's there's something about that. I mean, Iowa, yeah, but we ain't split not like. We're also not like born and bred from LA. Motherfucker, you ain't from Iowa, all right? Except Chris Kane is from Iowa. Oh, you know what I mean. But, you know, like, uh, <laughs> no, name your band after a place Boston, Chicago. There you go. That's the big but, dick move. <laughs> when Slipknot came out of that second record, I or not came out, like, just I remember the first ad I saw and it was called Iowa. Like, it was, you're like, oh, that just sounds dangerous. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know if you're a Slipknot fan, like, I'm obsessed with them. It was, it was like, oh, how? There's no better title. Listen, I don't know if you saw what uh, <laughs> fucking uh, Tosin was posting yesterday of the rioting going on downtown. All right, that's dangerous, motherfucker. That's hard. All right, <laughs> they ain't doing that in Iowa. 
<laughs> There's too much space. That's right. L.A. is hard. But anyway. They're riding downtown. Yeah, because of the Super Bowl. Because L.A. won. If they'd have lost, they would have also rioted. Exactly. But I just wanted to make this point about some of these things that are, to me, a lot more about self-gratification. And ultimately, the work itself is what matters, right? Metallica's biggest album is their self-titled album. And no one even calls it self-titled. They just call it the Black Album. And the album cover is essentially a void. It doesn't matter, right? No, straight up, you know, I'm a huge Metallica fan. And my friend Bobby, he's a huge Beatles fan. I'm always trying to push him on Metallica. And he's like, oh, their biggest record. Like, uh, where do you think that got, they got that idea? Like the Black Album, uh, like the White Album, like Reverse. And I was like, just, I love when you're just like, yo, that was adapted by the fans, man. Like, you know? Yeah. But let's but let's extrapolate that, right? Uh, you know, Soul and Temple Pilots has an album called Purple. Does that fucking mean anything? I don't know. Does it matter? The record's great. It doesn't matter, right? Like a lot of the things we think matter, sometimes they matter, but sometimes they don't, right? Like, like if you got a shitty record and you have a sh- kind of half-ass title, it's going to be clowned on. If you have the most perfect record, so perfect, like, you know, are pretty fucking substantially good, the album title will probably work. Yeah, no, no. But I think we can look at that as an example of why does, for me, Master of Puppets as an iconic title, as an iconic piece of artwork, that matters to me more than the record self-titled Black Void. Even though the Black Album might be, is, I actually might even like more than Master Puppets to some degree. It might be more impactful for me, right? Phonetically in anything in metal or rock or hip hop or anything, no one had heard those yeah. words, Master yeah. of Puppets. But, yeah. but anyway, so sometimes I think it matters, but sometimes it doesn't matter. Also, it's weird. <laughs> well, what do you? Think I think that's a long way of me like... saying nothing. I just said nothing right there. Well, it was a long way of. <laughs> I, I, I guess I the way that I'm thinking about it is you you guys are always you've got this this momentum. Okay, you've had all of all of these uh, hits on you know rock radio and doing big tours. You have a very big dedicated fan base they have been waiting for this new album, right? They're, they're like, well, they heard the last one. They're, they're so excited. They're like, all right, when's the next one coming? When's the next one coming? They're going to buy it, probably, unless it's total dog shit, which is, which is obviously not going to happen because you guys are putting in the time to make it great. You're putting, in, you're putting in the fucking fighting with each other to make sure that it's right for what it's going to be. If you called the album Dog Vomit... And you just put like some like a like a fucking eighth grade drawing on the front of some bullshit. They they probably be just be more confused than anything else, right? Like you're thinking that it's got to be in line with what you are as a band. It's got to match and be a good uh, delivery system package for the songs that you've worked so fucking hard on, and you know sound a certain way and all that. So it matters. Hundred percent correct. I get bummed in the box we're in, like. A band like Faith No More, like, they, they, yeah, let's call them Album of the Year. Like, you know, like, their sarcasm works for that. Like, I, I wish we were that kind of band, but yes, it would confuse our fan base very hard. And uh, I also am so wrong all the time. Like, I literally want to call it Double Trouble or Triple Trouble. Like, uh, <laughs> that shit works with, with other like, What's a record you like that is a pretty oddball title? Ooh, that's a tough one. Oh, I never thought about that. Okay, well, this isn't one that I was I- into. I think it came out after I wasn't really listening to the band, but like the fucking uh, Limp Biscuit, chocolate uh, starfish and the hot dog flavored water. I actually, I think that grossed me out so much that I was like, nah, 
I don't really. I don't. I'm. I'm good. I don't need to listen to that. <laughs> it might have been great. That did that had break stuff on it. I think it's a good album. Oh, it absolutely does. That record's incredible. The nerve to call your record that. It's amazing. The nerve to have a giant toilet on stage. It, but it, I guess it kind of it aesthetically matches, or their their audience are yeah. maybe people who would be like, oh yeah, it's funny. It's gross, and f- I like things that are gross and funny. Limp Biscuit. Even the band name is silly and ridiculous yeah, and stupid. That's true. Their new record is called Still Suck. <laughs> like, that's fucking hard. That's great. I, I really like it. If you haven't listened to it, it's pretty sick. There's definitely like four songs that are really good. I'd love to get them on here if you happen to know them. Um, hook it up. But like, I got wasted with DJ Lethal. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, <laughs> not wasted. I was just hanging. Um, and he, <laughs> this was like four months ago or maybe five, but I was like, dude, please, man. Like, uh, I just met him that night and I happened to like, you know, I'm a huge fan. So I was like, please, can you show me some shit? He's like, dude, chill, man. Like, don't, don't, don't bug me. And like, eventually he's like, ah, right, dude, let me break you off. And he did. I was like, I was ecstatic about it. What a cool little movement that's kind of coming back. In my opinion. It seems kind of like it's less about whether it's a, like a great, amazing title and cover. It's more about it representing the thing that it is like sure like i saw that and i was just like nah no nah, i'm good but that just means that i'm not the, i'm not the target audience i didn't get it and for you know for the limp biscuit one like you you guys are showing them what they're gonna get and that's more important than anything else that it's representative not that it's somehow objectively great or whatever it matches what are you really into musically like metal wise Power metal and like progressive stuff. Gamma Ray, you like them? I fucking love Gamma Ray. <laughs> fucking a, dude! What a fucking sick band, dude. Super sick. But I, I also understand that that is like totally nerdy shit. And but when I look at the cover, the cover, the the titles, I was like, you know, fifteen or whatever, and I was like, oh my gosh, they make music that matches the kind of shit that I read, sci-fi and and fantasy shit. And I was like, fuck yes. I put so much heart and soul into like what I thought was gonna be our first album cover. It just ended up looking like a shitty like uh, Galaxy Gent record, you know. But like I, <laughs> yep. I tried so hard, like you gotta be fucking spacious and cool and fucking. And it's like it ended up being just so derivative, and uh, it's it's like really bad. But like I was like, dude, this is gonna be so sick. And like uh, when Tommy joined me, he was like, no. <sighs> Like, not to continually even bring him up, but, you know, but he did have a lot of parts in, like, just taking away the artistic side of things to make it more impactful. And that was very difficult for me. And I have to say he was right. Well, if you think about, for example, Pantera, Glamterra era, right? Was that, they had a different singer, right? Am I crazy? It's up until the last album, Power Metal, which was with Phil. Okay. And then, like, then they became the Pantera that we know and love. Like, if it, if they hadn't, I don't know, would we even be having this conversation about them if they'd have kept doing what they were doing? Maybe, but probably not, because they did something brand spanking new. They stripped away all of that, all the glam stuff, and they got to the heart of it. And it um, Not even so much on Cowboys, but even the title. Do you know where they got that title for Vulgar? That's from Dracula. Oh, is it really? Yeah, Dracula, like he wakes from the from his coffin and he goes, I will be a vulgar display of power. Oh, sick. I did not know that. But then, you know, Far Beyond Driven, that's a statement just in itself. Great Southern Trend Kill, those are iconic 
fucking album title. They had five album titles that even like reinventing the steel. I mean, they, they just nailed it. Five iconic album titles, five iconic albums. That's it. Like God forbid. What's your favorite? Favorite album? No title. Title gone forever. No, dude, constitutes reasons. Like that's it. Like gone forever. Sounds like me drunk. It's like, yo, we'll call it gone forever. Sounds lazy. Well, Constitution of Treason, I didn't, I didn't like because it, it had the four, like the you know the in the in the Roman numerals, and then it was it came out you know only a few years after Chimera's Impossibility of Reason, so it made me think of that. Um, I like the, yeah, just the I don't know, just phonetically the way it sounds, it it, it bothered me that it's anything that's too close to one of your peers. That would never cross my brain. Remember when you played me that record, like in the back yeah. of our bus on like where like, dude, my mind was blown. Like I was so fired up. And I remember your brother too, just like he got so drunk because he was feeling himself. But like he was like talking to the trees, like, dude, we done it. Like uh, I I stand behind that record so hard, man. Like Yeah, no, I just I just think Gone Forever is cleaner. It just feels like a vibe, you know. I don't know. What do you think of uh, a devil driver had I last kind words? I was like really like that. That's what I think. Winter Winter Kills is a great album title too. Yeah, not that cool. I like it. Dean Carr, you know who that guy is? Dean Carr, yeah. You said he took that photo, right? Yeah, he did like Marilyn Manson, Mudvayne. He did that. That's a totally real photo. Uh, West Borland gave us like the skull. We like glued the antlers on it, and we did it. Like took the photo in front of a a lake with the mountains behind it. Like it's it looks Photoshop, but it's totally real. It's like. We pay for it, but like that's what you get what you pay for. <laughs> Ain't no disobey, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I hear a lot of um, sort of the the ups and downs of collaborative decision making in in a band, both for songwriting and for all, all this other stuff that's that's like surrounds the the music. It, it's not the music, right? The songs how you write and record them and who's playing and singing and all of that. That's all super important stuff. But this other, this other stuff, the, basically the packaging, the promo materials, pictures and uh, album covers and album titles and stuff, they have to be very evocative. But I love hearing like John, you saying like you come up with these ideas and you, you get, you go so hard into them, you believe in them, but then you're also like, Doc is your is your first goalie kind of. You're like, oh fuck! I really thought I was that was good, but I sent it to Doc and he didn't like it. Like maybe I need to go back to the drawing board, or you'll go in hard. The band could have been Triple Dragon or whatever. What did you call it? Triple Trouble, Triple Trouble, and I'm thinking Double Dragon. <laughs> first Double Trouble, Double Trouble, then Triple Trouble. Not much gets by Doc in like we when he says like word is bond, this is the law. Like it's very rare where I'm like. I disagree. Peer review is so important. And uh, Doc is my rock by far because I, I go off on really bad tangents and like Doc reels me in for sure. And then like if he likes or even approves something and doesn't even like it, I'm like, oh, I'm getting somewhere. And like if you know Doc, like Doc, he's the most, you're the most, you know, sucking your dick right now. You're like Doc, but Doc's the most intelligent person I've ever met in my life to the point where it gets annoying because like, you know, like, hey, what do you like? Uh, you like what? What's your favorite chip? Well, okay, he knows everything about chips, and then he has a, <laughs> a strong opinion about it. But like, I do love chips. <laughs> oh, talk about like the real McCoy. And just, like, there's no other doc. You know what I mean? You care so much about caring that it's beautiful. You know what I mean? To me, I don't give a shit about a lot of things, and I know you get pissed at me for that. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I wrote this river. You like, I can't believe you just ditched that. And like, I'm very thoughtless. 
like a lot. And like, so doc wheels me in a lot, like, yo, focus, dude. Like even with the uh, meet and greets or something, I'm like, yo, let's wrap it up. Like doc always says, dude, chill on the wrap it up. Like, I just want to, honestly just want to eat pizza and watch TV most of the time. <laughs> I think one of the things that I, that I'm getting from this though, that's very, very undervalued is the throwing shit against the wall without this uh without worrying about it so much and to me it sounds like you are willing to just fucking get the ideas out there and a lot of people are very scared of this you know a lot of what i do here on the channel is songwriting related and i start from the very ground up which is like you have to not be scared or or self-conscious or whatever to actually spit your ideas out because the good idea isn't maybe not going to be the first one. And if you've never done it before, you have to rid yourself of the self-conscious part of it just to get enough fucking material to even be like, no, this isn't that good. Oh, this is pretty good or whatever. And it sounds like you're not scared of that at all. You're constantly getting these ideas out and, and then Doc... Sounds like he's kind of filtering through them too. I'm an avid, avid, avid believer that like uh, the guy who hangs on to his riffs too much is because he hasn't written enough of them. I write so much shit, it's fucking ridiculous. It's absurd. I just don't really care about my music that much. Not to be like disrespectful to, I really care about what I'm trying to accomplish, but like, oh, take it, leave that, move it around. I just don't care because like, if that makes sense. And I think that's part of my gift. I think it's John's gift and his, and his curse because I think... In, in some ways, it makes him free to move quickly, not get it, uh, too attached if, you know, because you can sometimes just mine a creative environment to get someplace better. But I think the problem with that is he's also very willing to discard things that are perfectly great already. And so John will do this thing where he'll just keep working a song till it, it was fine. And then it's like you overwork, you overbake it. And then it's and then you actually end up with something that wasn't as good as it was. So I'm I'm in this thing of hey, if something's great and, and to some degree I think John inherently knows this, which is why he can have a riff from nine years ago and bust it out and then put in a new song because it's like yo, if something's good, it should theoretically not age out, right? It should still be viable. If you have a great song you wrote ten years ago, the f structure of that theoretically should still be viable that's why great I think, songs are time i think yes but but also the components of something that's special don't just throw that away like keep it in the library keep it in your this is your little bag of of treasure and and just understand the more you create it's just more there but it's if there's something cool there's something cool and, and it can always be useful right if you're you're working on a song, you're stuck. Oh, what, what what should we do with the bridge? Well, it turns out I have a bag of treasure here. Let's look at the treasure <laughs> trove. Maybe we got a maybe we have a part. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, don't ever forget anything. And just because something is older doesn't mean it's it's not viable. Or just because you had a song that didn't make this record doesn't mean it's not gonna make the next record. Or I feel like songs that didn't make the record wasn't because they weren't good enough. They just either weren't done or they you know what I'm saying? Or they weren't developed or whatever. We already we already had something of that vibe. So I'm just of the mind of, yes, be free, flow, but don't throw shit away just because. And also don't be the dog chasing cars that just because something is new and it's exciting means it's better. Yeah, but hold up. Like, I never, ever give up on riffs. Like, I remember Springfield Summer, Chris came like, still beating that one up. 
I just know it's going to work at some point. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I know. That's what I'm saying. You're contradicting yourself saying you're frivolous. No, I'm frivolous when the song is written and, then, and they're like, oh, let's change this part where I just don't really care. I remember everything I've written and uh, part of my curse that I think what I do is good. So it's like, yo, it's sick. Like, I won't forget it. And like, uh, you're a riff librarian. I get really down on myself because like, I like, think what I'm doing is special, but the people I look up to and what I like, I'm like, I don't even touch them, you know? So it's like, um, so whoever is listening, like, you can't get it twisted. Like, in my opinion, I'm not good and not important. I'm just trying my best. And like, I think that sounds like I have a chip on my shoulder. Maybe I do. But in general, the best is the best. And I'm not that. But fuck, I'm like Jason New said, I'm going to try my hardest to be Hetfield. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I like that. I think your attitude is probably what has gotten you as far as you are for everyone involved. I've noticed that people who have the right attitude and mindset more than anything else do really well because, sure, anybody can write a riff. Anybody can probably turn it into a song. But the thing that's going to keep you from actually doing those things is how you how you go about it, how you feel about it, your your attitude. Because if you write something and it's not good, a lot of people will be like, oh, I guess I'm not a good songwriter or whatever. Or if you think you're too good, you'll maybe be too precious about it. Yeah, very interesting dynamics you're talking about. Like, I'm very happy that I'm not that sick. Because if you're really sick, I watch people say, who's really good at piano or guitar, like there's limitless to them. They get confused, I think, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, um, interesting point. Like, uh, you know, Matt Garska from... Mm-hmm animals and uh fuck some other drummers there they're doing like a, a drum camp thing and uh we were just like hanging out having a couple of drinks and i'm like yo like uh can i can i do that like and they're like the vibe immediately was like you're not good enough you know and i was like well you didn't have to say it guys i was like but when i if you let me go my point would be like yo these guys are so much better than me but i'm sick as fuck and i really love my heart and you don't have to be the best in the world to be successful. And they were like, fuck. So they brought up the, the, the camp dude or whatever, the head dude. And he was like, nah, I'm, I'm not going to pay for that. But in general, like they were very, they understood that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and the one of the things that I've noticed about really, really, really sick musicians is that they, they're chasing this, the feeling of accomplishment and doing amazing things on their instrument. They can't necessarily write a lot of the time. They, they all, the kind of music that appeals to a musician, especially one who's ama- really, truly amazing, doesn't appeal to a broad audience a lot of the time. And they spend so much time chasing their skill level that they're not thinking about all of these other things that you guys are thinking about. And, and they often will wind up with an audience of musicians, and that kind of sucks. Just to kind of relate, because we, we didn't actually get to talk, we, we kind of filter everything a lot through John's perspective in terms of how how he writes with the band but me like i'm i'm probably i'm a lot more self-sufficient where like we'll take a song off the record called house of cards and i basically demoed that you know the first you know basically through two choruses right and i pretty much had that pretty much mapped out it, it changed a bit but the whole song is based off two chord progressions or one chord progression and every riff basically goes goes from a to G. That's the whole that's the whole, the whole thing and I had that main riff. I was workshopping this riff for probably a year. <laughs> you know, I actually went and did that with Max where he was kind of producing it 
or maybe me and Chris will sit down and we'll work on Chris's ideas or something where I'm more doing my own demoing. And I consider myself to be a bit more of like a craftsman where I'm like really detailing something out. It's rare where I'm just going to bring a riff. I'm going to bring a song idea that's more fully formed. Yes, and everything you bring, when you do bring it, it's usually almost perfect. I don't know about all that. So in my opinion. Yeah, but like House of Cards, like I pretty much had an idea of what I wanted. And then the verse kind of ended up turning into the bridge. And then him and Max kind of helped work out the, the the verse chords and then took what I what I was thinking with the pre-chorus and and Max just made it a little bit cooler. But but structurally, it's essentially like what I conceived of. And that's something where I'm not going to bring 50 ideas. I'll bring three ideas or four, but they're very manicured when you actually get it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. not, I'm, I'm, it's rare that I'm going to bring in something that's raw. It's a more fleshed out idea. Yeah. And I, well, I, but I'm like, I'm not going to even show it to the band unless I think it has the potential to make the record or be something that feels special. Yeah. Like I flesh out my ideas very hard before I present them, but the difference is like, they like better off this way. That's a, to me, that's a, that's a perfect song. So well-crafted. It, it, it still blows my mind in my opinion, but like, then let's say I write like learn to live. It, it's just like riffing, you know what I mean? Like I spent a lot of time on it, but like so different than the craft is better off this way or even house of cards. You know what I mean? That's how I feel like. And just, just to, just to describe the difference is John is not an engineer. So he'll work with other people, whether it's Max or Diego or Javi to help, you know, to help like cultivate his ideas. And luckily those guys are usually pretty good engineers. So his stuff always sounds great. I'm usually doing everything on my own, and it sounds pretty good. I'm an okay engineer. I definitely get it where it sounds good and, and and presentable, but it's a lot more of like a singular experience where John's superpower is the ability to uh, basically hone his vision with other people that are engineers and get and he can translate the ideas. And it's really amazing watching John work too, like getting a getting a, a an idea from A to B in a relatively short amount of time because he's he's very less he just moves he just moves you know and it's and it's idea ideas there's not a lot of sitting around and bullshitting it's really about getting uh, a kinetic energy right like the song develops its own energy of like one die idea leads to the second idea and the second idea leads to the third idea and then you just you just ride that wave and it's it's fun i've learned a lot from uh working with john yeah like yeah, sometimes it's like when we write together it's like it's kind of difficult sometimes because i'm so just fucking wrap it up let's go and like uh very quick and then like your style is like well i want to do this so i'm like okay let's do it but you love to explain why and like like, you have a lot of reasoning behind what you're doing and like i'm like cool it's sick don't worry about it well this goes back this goes back to trey's idea about live right i'm always thinking about how it's going to come off live like i feel like john rarely thinks about how it's going to come off live he just wants it to sound cool like obviously john like john knows how to set up a part and make it hit or have a breakdown work like john knows all the mechanics of that that obviously works well live, but me, I'm always thinking, especially like being worried about having too much production, right? Like, oh, where you know, I don't want to have too much on tracks. So now I've kind of, 
understood that's just kind of what the band is and to not really worry about that that aspect of it. But I want stuff to move and vibe. And I just picture, oh, this is the jump part. This is the headbang part. This is everyone waving their hands. This is everyone singing along. Like, I'm always thinking about that because I... You're choreographing the crowd. You're like, they're well, going to do want, this and then that and then that. That's awesome. No, but I think you, sh I think you should be able to play your record from... Be yeah, like... You're, you're riffing House of Cards. It was like, I couldn't believe in it for a while. But like, you just, you laid down the law. You're like, yo, trust me. Like, you know, the band, the band. I was like, eh, I think it's like kind of like too basic. I mean, coming from the most basic dude of all time. But uh, so it was like, then like, dude, when that mix came back, I was like, I was wrong. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I got it right there. I think a band in our genre specifically should be able to play their album front to back live and not have people get bored, you know? So like, I'm always, you. Sh it shouldn't just be an album to listen to. It should be something to experience in a room together with other people. Yeah, you're not lazy. That's, you know, <laughs> try not to be. Lazy pays off in certain ways. If you're thinking efficiently, like, that's good. I like the way that you describe John's approach because I will languish over things forever and ever I have to remind myself often that done is better than perfect. And it sounds like John's like, let's just like this fucking get it done. We'll go here and do this. I want to go home and eat pizza and watch TV. <laughs> but he does that too. I told you he'll ruin songs that he'll like the third version of it won't be as good as That's the, in my opinion. Like for example, the song on the case, I found the old version of it and this breakdown this dude, it was so much, it was, in my opinion, better. And it was all about the buildup. The actual breakdown part, I think, was pretty much the same. But I literally forgot about it. And I was like, man. And I don't think it was his fault. I think there was other creative input in there that turned out what it was. So I literally, Joseph McQueen, I'll throw him under the bus right now. And Josh, like, you know, that creepy little, uh, blah, blah, what are you doing? Blah, blah, they, they, I think they ruined that breakdown. I'll say that on the record. It's still a good breakdown. It's just very straightforward. There's not. Is very little expectation subversion. Mm. Oh, I like that. That's a great phrase. I am going to write that shit down right now. Expectation subversion. That's something that I talk about a lot. I teach it in my course. I never had a good name for it. Doc Coyle, the smartest man in metal. Or as we say, zig when they think you're going to zag. Zig when they think they're going to zag. <laughs> song's called Benched. <laughs> benched. <laughs> By the band Benched from the album Benched. See, you know what? Benched, the next album has to be the first song. It has to be like a minute and 20 seconds of just chaos. <laughs> it sounds like you're trying to get benched. Second track, Triple Trouble. <laughs> so I want to uh, go back to a, a different thing that we were talking about a little bit. I'm curious because it seems like it would be so easy for it to become too many cooks. Because like I said, right when we opened up, you have, you're working with all of these amazing people who are probably all very opinionated to an extent but they're all you're all working towards the same goal but now you've also got dl who's known as a producer a songwriter when he came into the mix what kind of things did he contribute what was it like uh working with him um on it as well so he collaborated on writing lyrics and some vocal melodies and stuff pretty much right right away he was collaborating on that and he wrote a song that didn't make the record uh musically and some vocals and, and stuff like that. Really, really great song. Can't wait for that to that to come out. And then I think he collaborated on Springfield Summer, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's not one one to happen with DL. But to further answer your question, 
like he stepped into a lot of pieces that were put together and uh, we relied on him to make calls and putting that trust in like on simple things, but it felt really good. But to be honest, like our forest record, is really going to show what like DL can do. And I can't wait to see what he's going to do. I've already been like punishing him, like calling him like, yo, what do you got? What do you got? So I write, you know, so it's, it's, it's going to be really exciting. Like uh, me, a relief. Yeah, and it's, I mean, think about it this way. I was the primary songwriter in God Forbid. John was the primary songwriter in Devil Driver. DL was the primary songwriter in, in Acacia Strain. And we're all in a butt rock band together. <laughs> 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 and it's, which it's it's hilarious, but it's, um, it's interesting. Who would have thought? Exactly. Who would have who fucking thought? It's a butt rock super group. Yeah, but. But if you think about how we got here, it's completely unpredictable. It's completely showing how you can't just like cultivate a vision and just have it exist that one thing led to another. Next thing you know, we're here. But, and by the way, Chris, every time Chris Kane picks up a guitar riff or picks up a guitar, he writes a sick riff. Kyle is very creative. He's, you know, he's, he's writing full stuff. He's sending us stuff and he's talented. It's a lot of creative energy but like you said like you can't can you really have too many cooks in the kitchen everyone's not going to get their songs but for us because we've had this evolved process this gives us an opportunity to actually create a new environment where we can go okay well how do we want this process to work how can we make it more insular how can we make it more connective to who we are and represent what we want as a band but you also have to ride that line because sometimes if it's too collaborative, then sometimes it gets diluted, right? Like sometimes you need a a couple people with a more singular vision so that you get something that's that's just more distilled and kind of like has a sense of purpose to it. So it's about, we're, we're still figuring that out, but I think the point of any team environment is to maximize the potential, right? How do you get the most out of everyone involved and have their talents be elevated and not deflated, right? Like a good coach, right? Who's dealing with a sports team is going to get the most out of his players and make his players play 10% of above their level and, and, and have it uh synergy, right? Where everyone's working, you know, kind of where the, sum of the parts are more than the actual level. So that's something we have to develop, but the, all the talents there, and all the abilities there. It's just a matter of, hey, what do you want? What do you want to do? And everyone vibing with everyone is is at and going, hey, man, you know what? We can kind of do what we whatever we want. Don't be fucking afraid. Don't be afraid to fail. That's the main thing. It's like, don't. Sometimes you, you know, I just want to bring a little fuck you into the band, and go. Don't worry about what other people think. What do you think? Do we like it? I just want to do something that we like and and can get behind. Like I, I remember tracking drums to this record and like uh. Chris is someone that like I'm jealous of very much because anything he brings, like when he just does it, you're like, yep, cool, let's use it. And I remember like after tracking drums, like we had some drinks. I'm like, if you don't write the whole next record, like, but like I want him to write more, but like you know he's not really programmed like that. But like it's just insane, like uh, how much I'll work to write stuff. And he's like, well, you're a good songwriter. It's like, no shit, I fucking tried. But like when you see someone, he's just raw. When you agree, Doc, he just raw. <laughs> yeah, he's. I mean, he's a he for the style. He is a much tighter guitar player than than I am. And like I said, every time he picks up a guitar, he just shits out an amazing riff in in five seconds. And I'm always 
oh, play it again. I record it, you know, and I just. The worst, too. Where did I play? How did I play? Yeah. Fuck, you idiot. Like, not a bad, not an idiot, but like, he's just so, he's prolific. When you see him going for the guitar, hit record. (laughs) Yeah. But I, but I, but I think it's, it's important because there's the logistical element of, Hey, we have a record to make, we have a job to get done. But then there's the humanistic part of it, of making everyone feel like they're involved and making everyone feel like they have a vested interest. Buy in. I've been very terrible at that. That's something that the band has struggled with about managing the kind of humanistic and emotional sense of things and going and just and half of that is just making sure everyone's cool like hey make hey you guys want to come here you want to do that because especially in modern environment where every you can be so self-sufficient right you don't necessarily need a band in a room to get a musical idea down right or or develop something and so technology has is is putting us in this position where the band as a unit is kind of being valued less you know and you can kind of you don't the necessity isn't there it's it's a so it's this thing of us right we're in this one this phase of we made a record and now we're going to go tour and we're going to go exist in that world and learn how to be together in that world in this new environment with new energy and then we got to take that and then put that into the next record or the next group of creative stuff because we still have like songs left over like like a couple songs the band wrote after uh this collection of songs that are great like that are really exciting so it's the one thing we're not gonna have to worry about i think is output and kind of uh just new stuff it's just there's because there's just that energy just exists and john there's nothing he likes more in the world than getting in a room and, and creating music you know and uh so that's just something we're never gonna, I think, gonna need want for. And because DL is such a massive talent, like this is kind of a joke we make it. It's like an inside joke, but it's kind of true. We can just go, hey DL, can you just go make the new battles album and let us know when it's done? Because he could do that. <laughs> you know? He's been known to write whole albums. Yeah. He's just, just he, he's that and just be like, here you go. No, but he his level of talent, I mean, really probably dwarfs anyone else in the in the band. Like not good. He does do that. Like he writes Full records for popular bands, yeah. Yeah, that's outrageous. But anyway, guys, you, guys, have some couth, all right? Stop, stop putting other people's shit on Front Street, all right? I'm a, honestly a bit terrified of what the next one's going to be with the outrageous amount of talent that's going around now. Like, it'll either be the best and most amazing, or you guys are going to, like, it's going to turn into suddenly too many cooks. And you're going to be, it won't be that. That's something we have to figure out. The toughest thing with us is not necessarily how good or bad material it is. It's really, again, like us deciding what songs are going to make the record. It's the curation. What kind of band do we want to be? Do we want to lean heavier? Do we want to lean more radio? Do we want to, you know, do we want to be more artistic and and kind of um, left of center or whatever? Uh and that's that's the kind of thing we have to figure out. And that, but I think that process is is fun, you know, because we were under such a gun, time wise, when DL joined to like get this done, get you know, get the masters in by this point, so the record can come out. It was this, and uh, now we're in the position where I think we're going to be releasing material, kind of periodically, while still promoting this album. And to some degree, I feel like. You know, you had the initial burst of people just wanting to check the band out with a new singer. Hey, just kind of coming in and checking it out. 
But there's still a whole world of fans out there who don't know what the new version of Bad Wolves is. There's a bunch of people probably were never into the band at all that through us going on tour and going out and doing just old school band stuff, right? Get in front of people and do your thing. And hey, hey, Ohio, we have a new record. <laughs> Chip, please listen to it. And we go and do the thing, you know, for the next, uh, you know, year or eight months, whatever we're going to do. And then we go, okay, now, now, now we've done that thing. And let's, let's get back to the creative side. I, I find that like super interesting. Cause like, I remember talking, you and me were talking about like fourth record here and there, you know, and you're like, we got to, I, unless I don't remember correctly, but I think you're like, we got to calm like pretty hard. That's what I want to do. Everything you say, I analyze to death. I'm like, okay, so I can set the tone on how we start. And like, I was thinking about that too, but like, honestly, like, you know, you got to rely on your singers. His singing is so good. And you and me, you know, we could write like some deadly shit, you know, like, um, but it's like, then if it, how's DL going to sing over that? You know, it's like, I, I'm, I'm very conflicted. I'm confused on what to do on the next record, but uh, I will look to you. John, it's called, it's called cross <laughs> that road when you get there. That's, that's, that's like, like, don't, there's no point in thinking about problems before you have them. Like write the shit and let it, you know, figure it out. Don't worry about that. I just clocked it in. I checked it yesterday. I have 120 riffs. Don't pull a fucking Kirk Hammett for the love of God. Back that shit up now when we get off this call. Ah. Uh, even if they go away, not to be like kind of weird, but like, so I just always turn it on. The first thing I do when I wake up, Billy Joel said, one of the most amazing songwriters of all time, he said, get on your instrument, play for two, three minutes and walk away. And like, so I just took that. I'm nowhere near that dude, trust me. But uh, I do that every morning, every afternoon, or let's say I'm so fucking fat from Mount's food. I'm uncomfortable, fuck it, I'm drunk, whatever. I just always make sure, pick up a guitar, see what happens. And then, then when I uh, take a shit, I just listen to them all and then mark them if they're important. <laughs> Man, that is a takeaway for me. Like, I mean, not the part about taking a shit. I do that anyways, um, with or without your advice. But that's, that's fucking solid. That's good uh, usable or what's it called? actionable advice for, for young up and coming songwriters. Just, just do a little bit and then, you know, there's something you attach to that you kind of think is okay. Then I'll work on it like really hard. And that's where I'm like fully worthless as a songwriter. <laughs> like, all right, fuck. But I, I know if I like something, I'll work on it for so long that it's stupid. But in general, that little quick thing that really taught me a lot when I like, you know, um, you know, that works for me. Who's like kind of a more average uh, level player, drums or guitar, just have fun. Like I said, I'm so glad I'm not good, really good at instruments. You know, like that must be gnarly. Like, dude, I could do this. Like, I'd be so confused. Imagine being Inve. Imagine being like Dime did it perfectly. Like, took him. A, it took him a long time to really do the craft exactly how everyone loved. But like solos, everything. But he he wrote Walk, like the most boneheaded riff of all time. But fucking so sick, you know. Well, he, I think he cared about the important things. Like, you know, he uh, he was super sick, but he he cared about groove and songs. And yeah, he was amazing and uh, like a next level talent. But like, he's a great example, I think. I still to this day don't understand where that really clicked over. Like where he just like, yo, I'm going to write beefy ass simple riffs. But like, honestly, like playing walk 
like him is not easy. None of the stuff that he played was easy. It's simple. People confuse those two a lot, but it's... Yeah, yeah. You point out a great dichotomy, like simple and easy are not the same. Like corn simple and easy? <laughs> corn is not easy. Doing all those, like, just the toe tapping in corn will fucking throw you for, for a loop. I mean, to me, like, good <clears> God, <throat> that's, a, that's a tough riff. Like, doom, doom, one to, one to that 12. That, that's a hard skip. But in general, it's like this girl that I'm seeing, you know, like she plays guitar a little bit. I was like, yo, check out this riff. I played her walk and she's like, cool. And I like showed her how to play it. Listen to how it sounds, you know, I was like, so I was playing it, my best ability. She's like, well, that's like kind of crazy. Like amazing songwriter uh, player, but nowhere near being able to just go do, 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 like in that, that right way. That'll so cool like that. Like simple riffs, like really good guitar players. Like I wonder like how like John Mayer would play like uh like slaughtered. You know what I mean? Probably not that well. Like imagine John Mayer doing use my third arm. I would pay good money to see that. Really good ass money. You ever see the video of, of Madonna playing a new level? She's not in the PA. That's all Monty. Come on. It's probably. But but like that's so amazing that that happened. You know, just you just go like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> No, I mean, everyone on the internet did, everyone at that concert had no idea what was happening. <laughs> but like, how sick is that, that Madonna played at a new level? It's super sick. But the cool part about it is this, is the contrast. Like, oh, okay. That's the absolute dead last thing I ever would have expected. Yeah. It's really cool when really famous people like give metal props. Like, have you listened to Bill Burr's, uh, I was at a show with him, He uh, with Meshuggah, have you listen to his podcast, like that 20 minute thing. Yeah. The thing he goes on a rant about it. It's awesome. Like I was there watching him watch that. I was like, look at this dude. And then dude, just, it was mind blowing. It was such the girl I went with, she had a panic attack and left. Like she said, I, I can't watch this. This is so intense. <laughs> like I was like, fuck yeah. I'll see you, <laughs> see you later. <laughs> Bye. The only band that, that has done that to me lately or for a long time is Gojira too. Like then live, it's like, what the fuck is happening there? I remember watching with Mark from Suicide one time at the play. I was like, there's got to be tracks there or something. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, it's so fucking on. The harmonics is like, it's, it's, it's on a fake. Two nights at the Palladium, uh, me and Mark went once. First time I saw him was the Wilton with Lamb of God, Trivium. That was like 05. Yeah. Well, I'm saying the last time they were in LA, they played the Wiltern. You're talking about Mashuga? Well, actually, yeah, Mashuga and, and Gojira, they, the last time they heard they, they played the Wiltern. But anyway, that's not that interesting. <laughs> Double Trouble, that's where I lose it. Like, I was like, yo, let's talk about Gojira shows. Actually, I think it was the the, Ro uh, the Rose Bowl with Metallica. I think that's the last time I played LA. Gotcha. <laughs> well, there was uh, Tim Ferriss, who's one of the biggest podcaster kind of uh, figures in that. He's a big Seven Dust fan. Mm -hmm. And that, 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 that got me very excited. Speaking of people not mainstream people being into metal, got me very excited. I'm like, I actually want to hit him up. Like, yo, yo, you like Seven Dust? Tim Ferriss, you might like some bad wolves, man. Come out to the show, pimpin'. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I th I think actually Bad Wolves is a kind of a great crossover band in that sense. I was struck and still am by how unfucking believably aggressive so much of your music is for how mainstream you guys are in in the sense of how once again how how much success you've had in all of this. And it like sometimes I go like, how did like, how do they let this on the radio? That fucking riff on the, you know, like that, you know, drop G, like super, super fucking aggressive stuff. But we're not known for that. that no, you're not. But it's there. Yeah. But it's, it, it, yeah. it's, you kind of slipped it in sideways, you know? Yeah. And the fun part is when you play live. So, like, 
this is that zombie cover band. Like when we open <laughs> for Nickelback playing like Learn to Live, people are like, what the fuck? Yeah. It is crazy. We're pretty sure we're really not known for that. You know, like, and that's another thing that we struggle with is like, we all want to be creative, heavy, but like, don't deny your fan base, but fuck your fan base, do what you want. Like, fucking tough. You're looking for the icky guy. You know that? Have you ever seen those? Uh, it's like the uh, Japanese word for like reason for being. And it's all that stuff. The thing that you want to do, the thing the world needs. It's it's a, a, a Venn diagram, you know, the thing that mm. the, the world needs and what they're going to like and the thing that you can get paid to do. And like in the middle of this huge Venn diagram of all that stuff is your ikigai. And it seems like you're just moving towards that. You know, you're thinking about all that stuff and it's all very important. Keep in mind, there was a uh, concerted effort with the new album for the singles to have a little more edge to them, heaviness-wise, because, you know, one thing I observed about the previous singles was that they seemed to be a little bit neutered mm -hmm. comparatively to the rest of the material, and I thought that was not really congruent with connecting all the fan bases, right? Um, whereas opposed, if you had a band like Volbeat, or Five Finger Death Punch, their radio songs still carry the full character of what the band does. And I was like, we need to connect these worlds a, li a little bit more so that the radio audience understands that the band is heavy. Yeah. <laughs> but we also are literally polarizing catalog. It's, it's a little harder to find that medium. But I, I refuse sometimes to believe, like, why didn't we take I'll Be There to radio? Like, I'm like, that should have worked, but like, like people just say, no, that won't work. You know, it's like, like, you think you know, but I guess you don't, or maybe we would have been right. Well, you don't know till you try. Well, yeah, that's the thing is, it's it's an unprovable experiment. We are going to radio with Sacred Kiss. That will be our, I think, our first true experiment. Right on. What's your prediction? I want to hear that. Prediction? Pain. <laughs> you think Sacred Kiss will go number one? I don't know, but I also, I also don't think the number right the bragging rights of going number one is as important to me as the idea of a song having cultural impact right because radio is only one metric that affects x a number of markets and will have an impact and it's it's very localized and it's like i said we, the bragging rights of course it's helpful it's a great thing to market a band is being having a number one single, and it has impact, and it's super important. Do you think Sacred Kiss could go number one? I get what you're saying, but like, if it did, that'd be cool. But we don't really care that much. Like, if it goes top ten, Mate, here's the thing: I don't have the information here enough about those arenas to understand why something would or wouldn't. Um, I guess my my expectation would probably be no, but that's okay. I think it's okay to to do slightly worse in one metric if it achieves higher benefits in a bunch of other metrics. So like I said, I want is cultural and viral impact. Yeah, you want the world to know that we have some teeth. Well, not only that, is you want something that is actually going to get someone to hear the song and go tell their friend, yo, have you heard this fucking song? And then that gets, and you get an organic flow of connectivity and get some heat behind the material as opposed to yeah. it just got played on the radio. Sometimes I get lost in that and metal sucks with me and then 
Remember we were at the, that bar in Brooklyn? What's it called? St. Vitus. Is that the one? They frequent that one a lot. Yeah. And he was there. We were working our second record. And I was like, well, you know, I was like trying to figure out street cred and how heavy. And he just said, he goes, bro, your street cred is long gone. <laughs> like, you know, like, like uh, that, that actually hit home to me like pretty hard. Like uh, I was like, yeah. So if I write something heavy, cool. But I have zero expectations for anything that we do that is aggressive. That's why I was interested. Sacred Kiss is pretty cool and it, it, it could work. But if it, if it did, that'd be fucking amazing. But uh, that would be very proud. I'm going to interject real quick because I was very, very struck by Sacred Kiss of all the songs on the album because to me, it felt like so much of it had crazy pop potential. Like to me, it sounds like Imagine Dragons plus power metal plus gent like, and I was like, what the fuck am I listening to? And I was stoked off my ass because I love pop music. I love power metal. Like we were talking about Gamma Ray earlier. The drum beat is the is the power metal part to me. That like that like fast two and four thing. Yeah, it doesn't sa- it doesn't fucking sound like Halloween or or Stradivarius or something. Like it's just the drums. And then incredibly heavy. Dropping the names Halloween. I'm a fucking power metal nerd. I love that shit. Sonata Arctica. I just I'm just gonna say names of bands. Angra. Um, no, but like, and so, I, so I'm like, holy shit, what would happen if that became a single? Like, would it just be confusion by, from everyone? Because it seems like it's, you like, you're like, oh, you're listening to maybe Imagine Dragons. Maybe, maybe. No, fuck you, power metal. Boom. And then huge chorus. I want, I want you to do it. I want you. To, I have no power in this situation, but that I want it so bad. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that is our next single. We're all very curious to see if it's possible. I'm going to be watching with bated breath. It's easily my favorite one, but like... Putting money in the, in the radio campaign. Like the radio game world is... I don't understand myself, but it's not just like, oh, the song's good. And it just rises like the, there's like campaigns that go on. And then like some bands are like iconically set in and shit like rises organically but in general it's definitely like the money driven kind of thing you know yeah i think most people don't don't really think about that you know smaller bands are like oh if we write the best song that we can and we put it out there it'll be a hit and it's like oh did you hire a publicist like did you whatever like do you have a radio campaign yeah i believe the average radio campaign for like certain bands like uh starting i think it's like a hundred thousand (laughs) dollars jesus there's no guarantee to that that will work like i remember being on roadrunner and like certain bands went to radio like backstage like like oh god that radio campaign failed hard like lost lost label a lot of money on that one the band has to pay for it in the end but uh i remember like listening to that like i didn't understand what that meant you know all right well that feels like a bummer to go out on i'm curious to know first of all what's the uh what is the immediate next step for the band you've got this album it's been out since october you've you've talked a little bit about what's working on the next one are you guys just constantly writing i mean it sounds like john you're always writing like you said at least to some degree is there a a go time when you guys are like okay now it's time to start writing for the next record we give me all your ideas um how far in advance does that usually start or whatever like what's well you you could probably say if we wanted to include material that's left over you know, we're already ahead of the curve, but I don't I don't know if we want to make that material part of the next record or we just want to put it out beforehand on EPs or singles or, or, or things like that. Honestly, we're always busy, right? That making things. So we've like been working on acoustic versions of the songs. We made a 
Christmas song, uh, right? You know, going back to to last year that didn't is, is apparently is not going to come out till next year. So we're always doing something uh, in the creative recording space, even if it's not an original song. Honestly, I think right now what we need to focus on is touring and getting that aspect of things up to where it needs to be because I think we've proven with the record that the band could still write and, and put out really solid music. Now it's like, okay, go be a great live band and prove ourselves on that front and keep an eye on the ball. You can't, uh, I'm really not worried about what the band is going to be doing creatively. I think when it's time to do that and the, John's writing 50 riffs a day, DL's writing, creating the entire new album on his own, <laughs> you know, uh, and then he'll just let us know. And, you know, so I think I just think that will take care of itself when it's time. But I think we have to keep our eyes on the prize, which is go be a great live band, connect with people face to face. That's what we need to do. It's going to be so intense too, like stepping out and like playing, let alone not having played what, like two and a half years now. And then with a the new singer, it's going to be, it'll be two years. It'll be two years almost exactly to like within 10 days. It'll be two years. Guys, this has been very, very eye opening. I know it's probably just uh, business as usual for you, but I absolutely love hearing about this stuff. Everything that goes into it, Bad Wolves, Deer Monsters is out in the world in all the usual spots. Go and have a listen to it now with fresh ears, um, having having heard so much of what went, what went into it to make it happen. I'm going to go back and listen to it now after having binged it in preparation for this. Um, now I'm going to go back and listen to it again and hear all these things that you've been talking about a bit. I And also <laughs> looking forward to potentially... My favorite album or song on the album being a new single, which, you know, if it doesn't, that's fine, too. But the big the great experiment. And so go see Bad Wolves on tour with Papa Roach and Hollywood Undead at the website, which is where you can get the information about that. Badwolvesnation.com. Badwolvesnation.com. Doc got it right there. (laughs) Doc also has an amazing podcast that you should check out. The X-Man podcast. Um, Also filthy with amazing guests. John, you got anything you you want uh, to point people at? We're back, and uh, if you're a fan, thank you. And uh, if you're a new fan, I really hope you dig us. But in general, there's vinegar in us for sure. I know, Doctor, we're a butt rock band, but like I'm excited to fucking butt anybody's rock. That's for sure. <laughs> rock their butts. You gotta you gotta do the uh, the self roasting and self awareness and you know and to me that's that's kind of a joke but it's more about the perception of the band you know I think and the you know it's it's more it's more funny you know oh it's so funny and you'd be like uh, yeah cool maybe some of our songs are, are kind of like that but I'll be like yo anybody try to play on the case on the drums like good luck like it's not you know so it's like. You know what I mean? It's like, it's tough. You're like a, what is it? Like an onion. Like a tiramisu, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but like the tiramisu he makes on Friends with the beef, like, or that's Rachel makes on Friends with the meat in it. You know, there's a layer of, a layer of ground beef because, you know, you think it's just going to be sweet all the way through. Uh, and other desserts that resemble uh, bands. But <laughs> it, I'll, I'll say this. If anyone has only heard the sort of singles Go and check out the albums because, like you were saying, they're a lot heavier, and um, there's a whole lot to the band that I um, that I really dig. So, thank you guys so much. Um, I'll be seeing you around. Um, enjoy the rest of your week, and I hope that I will uh, be able to come and see you in Anaheim 
on On Tour. And uh, I'll catch you on the Flippy Floppy. Thanks again, Trey. You have a good one, all right? Bye. All right. That was an exciting one for me. Um, I mean, all of these are are very exciting and fun. Um, huge thanks to Doc and John for being on. Cracked me up so good that uh, that Doc called it butt rock because obviously that's what it is, but um, or that's what they get lumped in with. But, like, you don't want to call them that to their face. Now we can. So... Bad Wolf Deer Monsters out now. Really insightful, awesome interview. My songwriting course is also available now. If you're interested in learning more about writing songs, you're going to want to head over to howsongsaremade.com or check the link in the description. We do this stream every Monday, record all of the episodes live before a live studio audience, (laughs) as it were. Next week, we have Tetrarch on the podcast going to be talking to them very excited to hear more about what how they go about writing songs and thank you for being a fan i really appreciate all of you you're the reason that i get to do this and learn more and help get you guys the information about how your favorite bands write songs or even even more importantly i think bands that maybe or artists whose music you maybe don't really connect with Honestly, to to me, that's even more important because I think there's kind of more to learn there. So I'm actually hoping to get some guests on here who aren't really my jam more than anything else because I want to learn stuff. That's why I'm doing this. I will see you guys next week. Oh, I'll see you Friday for the Feedback Friday stream. So be sure to hang out on the Friday stream right here if you want to get some feedback on your songs from me. That's always a hoot. We do it every week. And I'll see you then. 